Welcome, everybody. Andrew Holacek here with a truly extraordinarily special guest, um, one of my main teachers, mentors, um, friends, Ken Wilbur, who I think at this point for many people doesn't really need uh, introduction. We, we did present a little bit on our site about who this remarkable individual is. Um, and I'll just say the briefest of comments about him. Um, and then we're just going to launch right in because we have so much that we want to talk about. But, you know, Ken truly is one of the most important philosophers in the world today. Um, he's the most widely translated academic writer in America with 25 books translated into some 30 languages. He's incredibly active still as a writer, philosopher, teacher, and all his major publications are still in print. And so, um, you know, the, the accolades, the superlatives when it comes to Ken Wilber go on endlessly, but uh, he's been referred to as the Einstein of consciousness studies, um, a national treasure. And there's no doubt in my life the influence that this um, remarkable individual has had on my life. And Ken, I don't know if you know, but I first met you um, when you moved to Boulder some, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago, um, and there was a reception at Naropa Institute with, uh, I think we're welcoming you onto the board of trustees with the Utrea was with you. And it was just a totally delightful opportunity to meet um, one of my main heroes. And so you know, we've bumped into each other many times in our time in Boulder. I've actually sat next to you during empowerments with His Holiness Penner Repiche. Um, and so, you know, you've been circumambulating my life, or I've been circumambulating your work for decades, ever since Spectrum of Consciousness was published, I've read everything you've put into print, and you still remain one of my um, heroes. And so thank you so much, dear friend, for taking the time to chat with us a little bit today. Well, it's a pleasure, my friend. Um, I think you are uh, the tops. <laughs> You're one of my uh, absolute favorite writers as well. And just as a person, I uh, happen to love you. So I think it's great. Yeah, the feeling is very mutual, really. It just goes beyond the limitations of this incarnation, for sure. And so what I want to do here, Ken, with your permission, if you can indulge me for just a second, I want to kind of set the stage for what I hope to chat with you about today um, and to, to, I think, convey to our listeners and also to you how fortuitous it is to actually have you as our inaugural speaker for this venture, because... The work that we're attempting to do with what we are coining nightclub, and I'll um, unpack that in a little bit, is absolutely completely resonant with the spirit of integral theory, which I'll ask you to talk about in just a second. But it's so cool for me because as I was flipping through some of your books, and again, I have them all, I, I was just like pulling up books and saying, okay, what does Ken have to say about dreams and, and subtle body? And it's amazing how often you come to this topic. And I, I came across this um, introductory paragraph in, in uh, Integral Spirituality that when I read it, it was like, OMG, this is a total mission statement for what we're trying to accomplish. So let me read this to our audience because it really does um, beautifully summarize the charter of what we're trying to accomplish here. So in, in your words here, Ken, if I might. The great wisdom traditions, such as Christian mysticism, Vedanta, Hinduism, Vajrayana Buddhism, and Jewish Kabbalah, Maintain that the three natural states of consciousness, waking, dreaming, and deep formless sleep, actually contain a treasure trove of spiritual wisdom and spiritual awakening, if we know how to use them correctly. 
We usually think of the dream state as less real, but what if you could enter it while awake? And the same with deep sleep. Might you learn something extraordinary in these awakened states? How do you know for sure without trying it? In a special sense, the three great natural states of waking, dreaming, and deep sleep might contain an entire spectrum of spiritual enlightenment, end quote. And that is just such a point on um, gem of a statement for what we're trying to do here. And I wanted to also share with you, Ken, I, I, I read recently a book, quite a lovely book, called Why We Sleep by a neuroscientist, Matthew Walker, uh, Matthew Walker out of UC Berkeley. And he goes so far as to say, and this is a quote from him, this is a hardcore scientist. He goes so far as to say, quote, it is possible that looser dreamers represent the next iteration in Homo sapiens evolution, end quote. And as you well know, you know, both in Vajrayana Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta, as you suggest in your paragraph that I just read here, Ken, if we are lucid to it, um, we are more in contact with reality in uh, the dream state, and in particular, lucid, dreamless sleep, than we are in, in waking consciousness. And as you so often refer to, this seminal quotation from one of our mutual heroes, Ramana Maharshi, when he says, that which does not exist in deep, dreamless sleep is not real. And so what we're doing here, Ken, with our work is it's we're, we're really using almost the excuse of sleep and dream to in fact explore the nature of mind and reality and to realize, as you point out here, that, that if it's engaged properly, the treasure trove, these vast natural resources that lie beneath us, within us, um, provide an opportunity for, for more spiritual development. You know, B. Allen Wallace and others, as you know, say that the coarse waking state actually has the least potential for spiritual transformation than these three states of consciousness. And so what we're trying to do is explore these domains as a way to help us wake up. And the last kind of preparatory comment I want, and then I totally want to launch into this and start to pick your amazing mind, is what I want to explore with you, Ken, is really in the spirit of both the Buddha in the East and Socrates in the West, where um, questions are more important than answers. It's really more important to question our answers um, and really, the, the kind of the archetype for me in the Western world is Mark, little Mark Twain, when he said, you know, it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you do know that just ain't so. And so, you know, the idea that we're awake just ain't so. The, the, the idea that we're fully grown up just ain't so. And, and so these are the topics I want to explore with you using the medium of sleep and dream. And under the guise of, of a, a format that I've always approached with my own spiritual teachers, you know, when I've had the opportunity to sit at the feet of the Holiness Panarepache or Karmapa. You know, I, I run my life with, with these masters where it's like, I want to ask the questions to these great beings, the answer of which will change my life. And, you know, maybe we can do that in the next um, hour or so that we have with each other. But I thought we would start, unless you have any, like, introductory overall um, general comments from your side, my first pitch to you would be, you know, you are the forefather, the father of integral theory, integral meta theory. And many people are familiar with it, but, you know, many people still are not. So what would be, Ken, your elevator pitch in terms of 
describing the extraordinary explanatory power and wealth of this mandala, this map that you've created, um, really in the body of your entire life. So give me the work of, you know, the summation of your entire life. <laughs> what, yeah, exactly. How, how would you define evolutionary theory? Um, well, I started out, um, I, would, I had a, a terrific education. My dad was in the Air Force. We moved around quite a bit. Um, and I ended up going to a lot of different schools, but I really had a terrific um, education. It was largely oriented towards uh, essentially scientific types of endeavors. So I was one of those bright kids that had, you know, chemistry labs in the basement when I was seven years old. And I was you know, killing cat accidentally uh, experimenting on it and blowing stuff <laughs> up uh, accidentally and all that kind of stuff. And I, I had always sort of been told and thought that I would end up going to Duke University um, simply because my mom's family was from the South and that I would be a doctor. And I ended up doing exactly that, ended up at, at Duke in the medical program. And literally the first day I was there, and I was uh, up to that point, sort of, you know, all-American golden boy. I mean, I was valedictorian. I was student body president twice. Uh, I was even captain of the football team at one point. I mean, it was really kind of weird. So I had a very happy upbringing. I was, everything was wonderful. And I got into medical school, and literally the first day I was there, I sat down, and you've always heard that sort of classic cliche about waiting for the next shoe to drop. Right. And I'd taken off one shoe. And before I'd taken off the other shoe, I knew I didn't want to be there. And it was hard to explain what was happening, but it just sort of dawned on me, kind of a, a blinding sort of Ken show, that all of the things that I had learned in science really hadn't addressed any of those idiotic, silly questions about why am I here? What does it mean? Who am I? I it was just shocking to me that I would learn as much as I had learned and didn't have any sense of any sort of answer to those kinds of questions. And I, I literally sort of dropped out of official education at that point. I kept going to school. I eventually switched over um, to doing graduate studies in biochemistry, um, got graduate degree in, in that field. But what I was really spending my time doing was a massive, massive search, east and west, north and south, and especially pre-modern as well as modern and post-modern, just looking at what are not only fundamental sort of answers, but what are the fundamental questions? Exactly. And what's actually available? What, what, what can we actually look at? And I, was, I particularly started by looking at schools that would have something in the very broadest sense could be called something like psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. uh, that in some sense, there's something wrong with your present state and you want to do whatever you can to make it better. Now, that could mean that you actually have a kind of neurotic, emotional problem. But it also opened very quickly onto these areas that claim that our normal waking state of consciousness is suboptimal, that there really are things called enlightenment or awakening 
or metamorphosis or satori or moksha, fauna is the great liberation. And what the hell was that all about? And I had started this massive sort of program of studying in, in both um, Eastern and Western general answers to those kinds of questions. Like, who am I really? What's the best that I can be? Is there some different type of state of awareness or consciousness that's actually more real, that's, that's more enlightened, more realized than, than the one I'm in now? And at, I, as I, and I was looking at everything from psychoanalysis to Zen Buddhism, sort of everything in between. And I was actually not just studying these. Whenever I would hit upon sort of one of the major approaches, like a psychoanalytic approach with the hundreds of different offshoots that it had had, I actually went out and found a psychotherapist that, that had a psychoanalytic orientation. I actually started doing that. Um, I, when I started Zen, and my first introduction to Zen was D.T. Suzuki's Essays in Zen Buddhism. These large three volumes um, absolutely were stunning to me. And the, I mean, I've been brought up, I was a standard Protestant Sunday school going kid. Um, and I knew you were supposed to believe all those things, literally. You know, Moses really did part the Red Sea and Lot's wife really was turned into a pillar of salt and all of that. And of course, I didn't believe it by the time I started developing any sort of rational um, approach and certainly not with my sort of overall scientific um, background. But I had no idea that there was even something like a satori, like mm -hmm. an awakening, like an enlightenment. And my first response to, to reading Essays in Zen Buddhism was I was infuriated. I was I was absolutely enraged. And I'm not the type of person who gets angry that often. But what was so made me so mad was I was something, you know, I was 17 or so years old. And my response was, I why did nobody tell me this before? How did I end up being raised in an entire culture that, you know, I, I've been here two decades and nobody even told me about this. I was absolutely enraged. And I finally ended up calming down and then went out and found a Zen teacher and started actually practicing. So I was doing all these things. And one of the things that I sort of couldn't help but notice, being a fairly bright boy, is that as you looked at all these sort of different approaches spanning throughout the millennia and, and east, west, west, north, south, is that in terms of actual kinds of practices or things you could actually do to take whatever your state of consciousness was and make it better, that they fell into about six or seven um, general sort of family uh, uh, of approaches that has certain family resemblance mm -hmm. to each other. So you could start to find um, types of approaches that really were working on something like a psychoanalytic or psychotherapeutic approach where you still define that you have a separate individual ego, but parts of that can get split off or repressed or, or dissociated. 
And so you can create shadow material. And what you have to do is, is, is take your narrowed, inaccurate self-image and combine it with the shadow material you've been repressing to make this whole more accurate um, ego. So it was, the point was to get a stronger ego and ego strength was the core of those kinds of approaches. And then there were approaches, particularly the, the deeply mystical approaches, they said, no, wait, you, you don't want to make your ego stronger. You want to get rid of your ego. I mean, it's, it's sort of not only different, but dramatically different than the more psychoanalytic approaches. And it turned out that there were indeed about six or seven of those kinds of family resemblances. And immediately, in a sense, because I was practicing a good number of those, and I was seeing the actual benefit that you would get from these different approaches, the question became very quickly, not just which one of these is right versus all the others that must be wrong, but just a simple assumption, they're all right. All of them were true, but partial. So the yeah. really burning question is not which one of these is right. The really burning question is how can they all fit together? Exactly. Now, they're already arising in the universe. They're already arising together. They're already here. So the universe must think they're okay. <laughs> or another. So, so how, the universe hangs together. Why don't our theories hang mm -hmm. together? And so that became sort of the guiding, in a sense, kind of meta theory of, of, of my own life. The big question um, was, how can these all possibly fit together? They've all arisen. They're all here. They're all showing up. How is that possible? Because not only do they, you know, not always agree with each other, sometimes they flat out disagree. Like, what are you supposed to do? Make your ego stronger or get rid of that little bastard? <laughs> I mean, that's a serious question. And it's not easy to get those together. So that became kind of a compelling point for me. And one of the first sort of Satori-like realizations in this field came when it started to dawn on me that as far as this thing called consciousness that I... Um, had in some sense just kind of taken for granted that I was conscious. But most of these different approaches, six or seven families of approaches, were actually attempting to adjust this thing called consciousness. They were trying to make it healthier or more functional, or they were trying to make it bigger or more inclusive or something. But none of them just took consciousness as a given. Yeah, the common, common denominator, exactly. Right. Right. So one of the first things that dawned on me was, okay, there actually wasn't just a single thing called consciousness. It, whatever else was going on is there was an entire spectrum of consciousness. It really was this extraordinary sort of rainbow affair with a, a, a good number of different levels or waves or dimensions of existence. And you could get in touch with any one of these. But it took a general, generally some sort of practice. You actually had to do things in order to engage these other dimensions of awareness if you weren't already aware of them now. Mm -hmm. And so 
that was a kind of a fairly big breakthrough for me because I noticed that these six or seven family of what you could do to make things better, um, that they really did tend to address six or so major different bands in the rainbow, six or seven major colors of, of consciousness. And there really was this thing called an egoic um, consciousness, even though some of the other approaches would eventually say, yes, it's there, but it, it's not ultimately real. It's actually in itself, it's a little bit more illusory. And there are things you can do to awaken deeper, realer, more inclusive states of consciousness. And so that was fun. But I had already sort of divided these different approaches into around these six or seven different sort of families of approaches. And then when I noticed that there were roughly six or seven sort of major levels of consciousness, types mm -hmm. of consciousness, dimensions of consciousness, those actually fit together quite well. That every major level of consciousness or dimension of consciousness had approaches that were designed to make that level function better, or even to bring that level into, into being, if it wasn't already part of your awareness. And that was a big breakthrough for me. So I actually wrote that up. It was my first book. I was 23 years old. It was called, appropriately enough, The Spectrum of, of Consciousness. And what that did was set me in a direction that was basically, well, it was sort of as all-inclusive as inclusive can get. Mm -hmm. I mean, there just really was a, a, sort of a, um, a kind of motto of what I was doing is I would just sort of keep in mind the idea that everybody is right. And it doesn't mean that some people aren't more right than others, but there are. But everybody essentially, well, it put it in a negative way, the human brain is not capable of producing 100% error. All the time. <laughs> yeah, I see nobody's smart enough to be wrong all the time. <laughs> so that means that pretty much every approach we have to things like what's real, what's ultimate reality, what's consciousness, who am I, that there are um, different approaches but everybody has some little bit of truth. And again, the real question is, how do all of these partial truths together? Not just which one is right versus all the others which are wrong. And that was just a fundamental shift. And later um, I came to see that actually did represent the emergence of a certain type of cognitive capacity. And, and that that really is um, an important part of what human beings do is from the time they're born and then you know not even to think about what might have happened before that in any sort of you know, rebirth or, or transmigrating or reincarnating sense but certainly from from the time uh human beings are born i mean you do have things such as being uh, a heart surgeon or being a concert pianist or just the best waiter at the local restaurant. But one thing is sure, all, all of those tasks are something that a three-month-old child cannot do. 
And between not being able to do any of that and being able to do that, you know, up to certain sort of Nobel level possibilities, there's a whole developmental unfolding. And things really do, in a broad sense, evolve. There really is a certain developmental unfolding capacities and their awareness and their consciousness, states of consciousness, the stages of consciousness that they go through. And so that began this um, quest, if you will, of finding just a framework that essentially could make room for all of these different types of ideas that human beings have come up with. And that sounds insane, of course, because, I mean, well, first of all, nobody's <laughs> nearly smart enough to, to take in all of the information that's available. I mean, that's just beyond anybody's capacity. So certainly we're talking about things like, um, you know, a view from 50,000 feet and over generalizations, ways that we can just make certain broad conclusions and put those things together. So even it takes something to jump to kind of a, um, a goofy, but um, an example just to get the point across. So we're saying something like, let's say you take a series of beliefs in like Santa Claus mm -hmm. or the Tooth Fairy or some obviously even uh, Apollo or Zeus or Aphrodite. Um, in some sense, us rational folks know that those aren't really real. So we wouldn't just automatically say, yes, the, the, the Tooth Fairy's true because you know the human mind can't produce 100 percent error so there has to be some sort of truth in it and that just on the face of it looks idiotic but if you actually sit down and study the development of human cognitive capacity then what you see and there turns out to be an enormous amount of data on this most of which most people don't know anything about but if we look at stages of human cognitive development, just to give one example, I'm not saying everything is right about this example, but just as an example, Jean mm -hmm. Gepser was a brilliant pioneer in the evolution or development of worldviews that human beings have created. And to tweak his terms just a bit, human beings have gone from archaic stage to magic stage to mythic stage to rational state, to pluralistic, relativistic, to integral stages of cognitive development. And those worldviews reflect those. And so there was a long time, for example, that human beings really didn't have a widespread access to what we would call formally rational modes of thinking, what Piaget would call formal operational cognition. Mm -hmm. uh, 100,000 years ago, uh, 200,000 years ago, human beings were at what Gibson would call a magic stage of development. Then as that continued to unfold, then they moved into what Gibson would term mythic stages of development. Now, it turns out that a mythic stage of development, and by the way, these stages have also been investigated in, well, we have perhaps upwards of a dozen multiple intelligences. And the stages of development in every one of those multiple intelligences, we have empirical studies on every one of those. And there's an enormous general uh, uh, amount of agreement on those stages. 
And so if we look at James Fowler, for example, he studied um, what people's sort of religious beliefs were like. And he found also that those tended to go through a series of around six or seven major stages of um, development. One of the stages Fowler actually called mythic literal. Now that's very similar, of course, to Gebser's mythic stage. And what you find at those stages is when somebody in Genesis wrote, Moses parted the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a, be a big metaphoric, big symbolic, transcendental meaning for that. What they meant was Moses parted the Red Sea. I mean, that was literally felt to be true. Mm -hmm. And that's what they wrote in terms of that's how their recollection would picture what had happened during the exodus from, uh, from Egypt. So that's exactly the kind of state that thinks those kinds of mythic beings are actually real. And as far as it goes at that stage of development, that was a pretty big um, uh, improvement in terms of how human beings were actually conceiving the world. But it does just start to show that, okay, wait, there really is this whole different kind of spectrum of, of developmental capacities and what we call consciousness really does undergo a type of evolutionary unfolding, a type of developmental unfolding. Well, now you get to things like, okay, well, what is this thing called something like enlightenment or something like awakening? Because just in terms of inclusiveness, that seems to be as, as sort of inclusive a direct experience as human beings can have. I mean, what it's basically saying is at, at, at the least, your identity shifts to being literally one with everything that exists. These states are called things like ultimate unity consciousness or divine oneness, mm -hmm. all-embracing, all-inclusive, supreme identity. This is what you really and fundamentally are. And part of those come with traditions that include uh, entirely unmanifest dimensions. Right. So indeed, that sort of formless, unmanifest ground. Well, that's included too. I mean, you can't get more inclusive than, than those kinds of, of states. And if, if we have something more inclusive, fine. Or, or, We'll, we'll include those. But those actually, not only do those appear to be sort of theoretically possible, there are indeed entire schools of meditative, contemplative, yogic um, traditions that do have these kinds of practices that involve those kinds of waking up experiences or awakening or enlightenment. And they do tend to show certain types of similarity um, cross-culturally. Yeah. It's just not to deny that there are very important differences and, and that there's always that there are types of cultural influences. None of that's denied. But there is this kind of family of resemblance to these kinds of things. And so that becomes an important part of whatever this integrative framework is that we're going to use we can already start to see some of the different parts that have to go into it. 
Yeah. And simply the things like archaic to magic to mythic to rational to pluralistic to integral, those are part of uh, a general sort of dimension or aspect of, of human being and awareness that I just refer to generically as growing up. Mm-hmm. You're actually in all of those dozens or so multiple intelligences. I mean, we have not only cognitive intelligence, but emotional intelligence. We have a moral intelligence. We have an interpersonal intelligence. We have an aesthetic intelligence. And we even have something that you could call spiritual intelligence. But we have to be careful and distinguish spiritual intelligence mm-hmm. as our multiple intelligences from what we might call spiritual experience or a direct immediate Experience isn't quite the right word in some ways because most experience, what we mean by that generally means is something that has a beginning in time, it comes, it stays, it, and it goes. It's usually divided into a subject versus an object and so on. And most of these awakening realizations don't have that kind of structure. They, if, if you have to think of some sort of metaphoric way to describe them, they're, they're, um, eternal, they're timeless, just in a stream of time. It's called unborn, undying. So that would be a different kind of capacity that human beings have. And I call that one waking up. I think this is, I I need to put a stamp of, of emphasis on this because this is one of the seminal contributions is and this applies completely to what we're doing with this trajectory from waking, extending uh, awareness, lucidity, which of course is just a code word for awareness from the waking state right. into the dreaming state, into the dreamless state. You know, the people define that as, as you so articulately put it as the process of waking up, which is one of the most common you know, terms used in the spiritual path. And I think, again, it leaves out at least 50% of the picture. In your case, 25 is only 25% of the picture because this incredibly important Western contribution, developmental approaches, you know, what you're talking about is the stages of growing up. And um, this is why I have been so completely enamored by the scope and the breadth of this mandala, this map that you've created, because without it, you're leaving out, you know, a massive amount of, of potential for growth. And, and the, the really one of the extraordinarily elegant things about the, the integral approach altogether is how non-proprietary it is. And, you know, your open mind, as you know, whenever people get engaged in their particular disciplines and their frameworks, you know, they put their name to it, they sign their art, they, they patent it. And, and that I think is one reason why uh-huh. When you go up written mind just doesn't have the capacity, the humility, honestly, to open um, to these larger dimensions of experience. And so I just want to put a stamp for our listeners on the importance of what you're saying here and then turn it back to you that, you know, the, the what you also sometimes refer to is the difference between horizontal and vertical enlightenment, that if you don't really walk both these tracks, um, your, your practices is incomplete. And it, to me... Ken, as you know, it's one of the, in fact, it's the only map in some of the questions that that came in today that um, I'll try to pass on to you later from our listeners. It's the only map that can even come close to explaining these ongoing scandals that take place in religious and spiritual communities where people allege to have higher states of realization, but 
you know, using your work, the Wilbur Combs Lattice, they have really no choice but to download it through their interpretive frameworks. And that's where the trouble starts. And if you don't see those things, they, they bury you. Your karma buries you. Your bad habits just bury you. And so I had to just step forward and say, this is such an important contribution that you're bringing forth in your work. And, and before I turn it back, I want to ask you this real quick. Have, is there any credibility to looking at the structural stages, the development that you're referring to with Gebsard and you know, these other hundreds of developmentalists that you refer to in particular in integral um, psychology? Is there any credibility to looking at that um, through the lens of uh, de-reification, you know, that, that somehow as one progresses from first tier to second tier and even third tier, the world, the mind, and reality itself becomes um, increasingly more illusory, more de-reified, more dreamlike? Or would you relegate that more to the state level of um, development? Well, certainly dramatic um, types of shifts in, in um, awareness, things that are called things like peak experiences, um, or if a peak experience becomes more extended, it's often referred to a plateau experience. But those sort of shifts, they really do have a way of subsuming previous states. So you get a sense that, wait a minute, this one is more real, or this mm -hmm. is something that is clearly better, or uh, typical, uh, although this only gives part of the meaning of a dream state. But what most people you know, understand by dream state, they don't think about what happens if consciousness continues through the dream state. They just typically, typically think about it normally. That, well, a dream isn't real. I'm having a nightmare and a monster's chasing me. It's gonna eat me. And then I wake up. And the first thing I do is go, oh, thank God, that's not real. And so those kinds of shifts do you have something to do more with states of consciousness mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And so it does when we talk about the subtle state and subtle realm in that sense. It is talking more about the shifts in states of consciousness. And those, those are very profound. And again, but one of the important, important distinctions that we found is that there, there are indeed these changes of state. And those can be small changes, like, oh, go from happy to sad, or excited to bored, or um, look forward to this, not looking forward to that. There are these little moment-to-moment -moment sort of little states, but then there really are these bigger like waking state, dream state, deep dreamless state, um, a drunken state even, a stone state, these sorts of big state changes. And those really are, if you look at these, the great meditative traditions, East and West, then you find that they really are primarily engaged in helping us move from states of consciousness that are at some point judged to be less real or less fundamental to states that are more real, more fundamental more in touch with what appears to be an ultimate reality. And those sorts of states are really, really extremely important. They're also relatively rare. Although people can have um, peak experiences, and in, in a certain sense, some of those are, are, are relatively common. Um, polls consistently show, for example, that around 60% of the population has had at least one 
a sort of peak experience of a dramatic oneness with everything, mm-hmm. one the entire universe. And that can be a fairly common peak experience. But in terms of actually sort of adjusting your awareness so that it's, it's at least constantly aware of that, or at least is open to that kind of expansion and, and uh, awakening experience. That does take usually some practice, and it's something that can take several years um, or even a lifetime, as a matter of fact, to completely develop to its, its full capacity, its full dimensions. That's the, the main core treasures of these great paths of waking up, the paths of the great liberation. And again, there is a very broad kind of family of resemblance, although we can find that there are also um, different degrees of it or the amount of inclusiveness, interestingly, can sort of get greater and greater and greater, even though each experience is an experience of oneness. So we have things like nature mysticism, where we feel one with everything in the, quote, gross physical world. And there's also subtle mysticism, where we can feel one with these kinds of subtle beings or subtle awareness itself. There is a formless mysticism, where we actually feel one with this infinite abyss, this vast, vast, unmanifest ground of of everything. And then there's sort of a non-dual mysticism where it, so all of those are included in your capacity for awareness. But those types of experiences are also, and those kinds of practices, relatively rare. And they're also usually the result of some sort of voluntary actions. It's something you basically have to engage in in a voluntary fashion. You have to take some sort of meditative path, some sort of contemplative path, some sort of centering prayer, some sort of yogic discipline to get yourself to recognize the deeper and broader states. And if I interject real quick, this is a really beautiful way to insert the role that that you've had personal experience with, which I'd love to hear about that if you're comfortable talking about it, you know, this is in fact the place of these so-called nocturnal meditations, where um, when we were engaged, for instance, in lucid dreaming or dream yoga, we're working to exercise in exactly the way you're talking about. That's that's the paradigm. That's the, the uh, practice of gaining familiarity with a subtle state. When we work with things like uh, luminosity, yoga nidra, or sleep yoga, that's a way to gain some familiarity with the causal states. And so just to kind of bring this back in to the trajectory of what we're aspiring to do with our so-called nocturnal practices is that there are, it's not just um, spiritual rhetoric, that these maps can become our territory if we engage in the vehicles of these transformative practices. And you write, you know, one, one of your sleeper books, uh, quote unquote, to me is one taste where you speak really beautifully, Ken, and in, in a rare fashion about your own personal experience of constant consciousness, right. of your ability to, to maintain awareness. Because I, I think this is important to share with people, Ken, because there are very few role models with, with these subtle domains of, of being. And it, it seems for many people, yeah, lucid dreaming, yeah, I can maybe get a glimpse of that. 
But something is outrageously radical to say that I can maintain conscious consciousness even through deep dreaming sleep, which, which by the way, Giulio Tononi, the great integrated uh, uh, neuroscientist, integrated information theorist, is now working with a, a team of scientists at the University of Wisconsin-Madison to actually substantiate this claim, because that, as you know, has not yet been scientifically substantiated. But if you feel comfortable with um, sharing with us, can your personal journey, and this is what I, I, one reason I so honor what you've done is that you walk the talk, or in this case, you sleep the talk, that it's not just philosophical rhetoric on your side. You know, you, you have engaged these practices and you have, you've um, journeyed into these subtle interior dimensions and then come back and, and written these travel logs. Um, and so this is really inspirational for us because there's so few people that can speak with lucidity, articulation, and clarity about these interior journeys that we take, oh my God, every single night when we go to sleep. And if your mind is extraordinarily subtle between the arising, abiding, and cessation of every single thought, this kind of iterative nature of this journey that you write about um, and then have the courage to speak about is really inspirational. So if, it, if you feel comfortable with that, can you talk to us a little bit about your personal experience of this journey, um, especially lucid sleep, you know, what? how would you even um, define that? It's obviously very difficult because it's formless and therefore fundamentally ineffable. But um, to whatever extent it feels comfortable for you, I think we would find great inspiration in your sharing of that. Well, certainly. And I mean, because one of the really interesting things about when you start to do something like lucid dreaming, or if you do then also sort of find your way into what I sometimes call pill lucid dreaming, which is yes. a great awareness yeah, in the deep dreamless uh, causal state. One of the, the most immediate things that starts to become obvious is not just sort of what you're aware of, like, oh, I'm lucid dreaming, I'm aware of this dream state, I'm seeing all in, oh, look, I can do this. And if I want to fly, I can fly. And oh, look at that. But it, it, what, what's also happening is you have a consciousness that you used to define as just something that was in the waking state. I mean, you had a physical body. You lived in this house. You worked at this job, you were in this relationship. None of that's present in the dream state. Or if it is, it's often just strange images or distorted images. There are things that you can start to see that you wouldn't, in, in the dream state, you wouldn't say, oh, this is archetypal. But if you were thinking about it, you could say, well, these are kind of archetypal images. These are, this is fascinating things that are happening. But here's what's really happening. There's still a type of I amness, awareness mm -hmm. that is present in the waking state, but now you find it's present in the dream state mm -hmm. as well. So there is something that's, that's constant between those two things. And it's not the objects that you're aware of. Those are all changing. But you recognize it's, it's still you. I mean, you wake up and you go, oh, well, I had a great dream. Or I, you, know, that, you recognize that that was the case. Well, that continues into deep dreamless. And all of a sudden, and of course, you can start you can have these Satori-like waking up experiences in just the waking state and still get a very, very strong sense of what I'm talking about. And, and maybe I'll come back to why I think that's so in just a minute. 
But what really starts to strike you is that there is something about this, quote, constant consciousness, which on the one hand does seem to mean that it just sort of it just is continuing in the temporal stream and you can be aware of that. But it's also pushing into something that just isn't even in the temporal stream that really does start to feel more or less timeless. And we'll come back to what that can mean as well. But let me just, because I want to finish this important thing that we started, let me just do about three or four minutes finishing that growing up part. And then we can come back and talk about these more waking. Because this turns out to be incredibly important. One of the things about these growing up models, and indeed we do have, as you mentioned, um, I did a book called uh, Integral Psychology. And I, in the back of that book, I include charts from over a hundred different developmental models, literally a hundred, with the names of the stages of consciousness according to those models. And of course, all of them generally have different names, but you can also see, see some really striking similarities as well. And so it starts to turn out that these developmental models, um, on average, there's a lot of variation, but on average, they give around six to eight or so major levels or stages of development. And these are, again, occurring across all of our multiple intelligences. And here's the strange thing about them. These stages of growing up, these developmental stages, weren't discovered literally until about 100 years ago. And that means, that makes them very different, for example, from the waking up states. Because waking up states are just that, they're states of consciousness. And a state means a first person, direct, immediate experience. You're aware of it, your first person experience. First person is technically defined as the person speaking. Second person, the person being spoken to. And third person is the person or thing being spoken about. Those turn out to be important as well. Because if we're on this all-inclusive quest, Turns out those three realms, first, second, and third person, really do deal with three very real realms. They're often known, for example, as the good, the true, and the beautiful. Well, we don't want to leave any of those out, do we? So, so we have these developmental stages that are occurring, and those are structures of consciousness, not states of consciousness. So a structure is much more like the grammar of a language. Yeah. Anybody who's brought up in a particular culture will end up speaking that culture's language quite uh, accurately, uh, basically. They'll put subjects and verb together correctly. They'll use adjectives and adverbs correctly. In other words, they're following the rules of grammar of that language quite accurately. But if you ask any of them, write down those rules of grammar that you're following so accurately, almost none of them can do it. Most of them don't even know that they're doing it, that they're actually following rules of grammar that parse and edit their experience, that actually tell 
that tell them how to, to, to divide and categorize. And they're doing that without any understanding they're doing that at all. Moreover, you and I, nobody right now, you can't introspect. You can't look within and see those rules of grammar. You're using, you and I are using them right now, but we can't look within and see them. That means you can sit on your meditation mat for 20 years and look within all you want, and you're not going to see these things. You're not going to see the grammar of your language, and you're not going to see those six to eight major stages of development that your thinking is going through, whether you like it or not. And that's why those things weren't even discovered until about 100 years ago. Whereas the waking up states, those are first person. If you have an a experience of being one with the entire universe and love and bliss, you know it. And there's just no question about that whatsoever. If you happen to, and, and, but no matter what stage of growing up that you're at, that will play a very strong hand in how you edit and interpret whatever experience you're having. And that does happen to include waking up experiences. Mm -hmm. Those will, if you have an actual formless state and, and there's just a, a complete cessation, nothing arising in consciousness, that's an immediate direct prehension or direct awareness. And so you're not interpreting that using your conventional mind. But as soon as your mind starts forming again, as soon as you start thinking that as soon as you open your mouth and move, basically. As soon as you start saying, you know, what was that experience or how do I that what does that mean? Then you are using your cognitive capacity, you're using one of those one of multiple intelligences. And those unfold according to these broad stages of of growing up. So those were only discovered, like I say, about 100 years ago. The guy that did it was named James Mark Baldwin. And Baldwin is often considered, if you ask sort of experts who is America's greatest psychologist, it's always sort of a toss-up. It's either James Mark Baldwin or it's William James. Now, William James just happened to be a friend and colleague of James Mark Baldwin. And while Baldwin was discovering these structures of consciousness, these developmental stages of consciousness, his buddy William James was studying states of consciousness, and particularly spiritual states of consciousness. So he wrote a very, very famous book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. So William James is studying these waking up states and his buddy Baldwin is studying these growing up structures. And these are probably the two most significant dimensions of awareness that human beings have. And they do go through types of developmental unfolding. So we can have peak experiences, absolutely. And it looks like pretty much if you look at um, the five major states of consciousness that both Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism, and Advaita Vedanta, for example, give are gross, subtle, causal, Turiya, or just pure witnessing awareness, and then Turiya, Kita, or non-dual, radical, unqualifiable, quote, unity. 
Um, and you can peak experience uh, pretty much any of those. Although, again, you generally have to practice with some uh, degree of regularity to be able to actually access these with full uh, awareness or full consciousness. But it does that does point out one of the reasons that when Western developmental psychologists following Baldwin's initial discoveries, we had great, great developmental pioneers, true geniuses of, of research and, and developmental uh, of studies. One of them was, well, when Baldwin quit, when he retired teaching in America, he went to Paris mm -hmm. and he had several quite famous uh, students, but one of the most famous was a young Swiss psychologist named Jean Piaget. And Piaget, of course, sort of revolutionized um, developmental studies um, in the West, and he was particularly uh, focusing on, on cognitive development. But those types of um, understanding um, became, um, they absolutely revolutionized how we look at what human beings do, how they interpret their world, and what's actually going on. And we ended up having um, brilliant developmental pioneers that ended up selecting, although they didn't necessarily understand this at the time, but they ended up selecting and focusing on just sort of one or two out of around a dozen multiple intelligences. So Piaget focused on cognitive development. Um, Lawrence Kernberg focused on moral development. Jane Levinger focused on ego development, Maslow on needs or motivational development, and so on. But we got these very, very um, amazing pioneering studies of our developmental capacity, our growing up capacity. And in uh, interpsychology, I give all of these 100 models. You can look at them yourself and see that there really are these sort of broad similarities. Now, again, whatever we name those levels of growing up will vary uh, enormously because, of course, it turns out that we have these different lines of development, these multiple intelligences, but they all go through the same basic levels of development. And so that's why we generally will just use colors for those levels, you can also use numbers. If you use a particular label, you have to be careful because your label will usually reflect one or so of those multiple intelligences. So you might use a moral term like pre-conventional or conventional or conformist or something like that for, for the uh, moral line of development. But that doesn't apply very well to emotional development or to cognitive development. So uh, if I use any terms for these levels, just keep in mind that there are dozens of different terms we could use. I really don't want people to get stuck because they don't like a particular term that I'm using or something like that. And just keep a very, very um, open mindedness about this. But if we just sort of look briefly at, for example, let's those six to eight sort of average number of levels. You can also find models that of course use fewer and some use more. Uh, the minimum that most of the models will have are at least four major stages of, of broad development. Because um, anything less than that, it really doesn't tell you very much. Um, but I'll give just a very quick example 
of these stages of development. And then also very briefly talk about how you can have a waking up experience at any one of those stages of growing up. And that's where it becomes incredibly interesting. And it's significant because I'll also just say very quickly, because these stages of growing up were not discovered until around 100 years ago, there's not a single major spiritual tradition anywhere in the world that includes a knowledge of those stages of growing up. And that's stunning when you think about it. Uh, if the great pioneering spiritual geniuses and realizers around the world, if they were aware of these stages of growing up, they would have been all over them. I mean, are you kidding? I mean, Buddhist, Buddhism alone. I mean, it's so psychological. A lot of times in introductory texts of the world's religions, a lot of them will say, we're not sure if Buddhism's a religion or not. It's more like a psychology, but it, there's really, you know, it doesn't believe in myths or God or goddesses or anything like that. So we we're not quite sure what to do. They would have been all over this. I mean, they are trying to get awareness to be as comprehensive, as inclusive as it possibly can be. Mm. And at the very interpretive grammar that we interpret our experiences with, that's growing and developing. That's changing. Here's a very quick example. And this actually, there are several models that actually use these four stages. Uh -huh. um, one of them is, um, for example, Carol Gilligan, who's a yeah. very famous uh, feminist um, icon almost. Um, she specifically studied moral development in women. And she found that they move through essentially the same stages that men do, but they do it as one of her books was titled In a Different Voice. Mm -hmm. That is, women tend, these are only averages, but they tend to use more relational terms, um, terms that have more to do with interpersonal um, activities and care and, and responsibility. And men tend to use terms that are more autonomous and focus on individual rights and responsibilities and stuff like that. Of course, men and women have access to both of those, and it's just a... a um, tends to be just kind of your own percentage orientation to those. But as she saw it in women, the first stage she simply called uh, selfish. Mm -hmm. And it was just that. The young infant is born. It can't take the role of other. It can't realize that you're looking at the world from a different perspective than it is. So if you take a ball, it's colored green on one side, red on the other. You put it between yourself and a very young child so that the red side is facing the child, and the right. side is facing you. And you turn it several times so they can see it's two different colors. And then you put it with the red side facing the child, green side facing you, ask the child, what color do you see? They'll say red. And you say, okay, what color am I seeing? They'll say red. Yeah. Heather, they can't get that you're seeing it from a different perspective. They, they can't, it's technically called, can't take the role of other. Well, that eventually happens, and you get to the second stage in, in Gilligan's stage. Mm -hmm. And that she just called care. So the first stage is selfish. We also use the term egocentric. Then the second 
stage, which you call care, is you, you can take the role of other. You can understand there are other people out there. So your identity expands from being just your own individual organism to a whole group. And that's also a stage that we just call ethnocentric because it's mm -hmm. focused on uh, group orientation. These stages in other multiple intelligences, in Kohlberg, for example, these stages will have names like law and order or good boy, nice girl or conformist. So these really are your identity expands to a group, but now you feel you must conform with that group. And if you break the laws, you feel profoundly unease. And many societies, of course, are oriented towards very strongly um, sort of conformist orientations. Mm -hmm. Her third stage, she called universal care. Now, that's interesting. It's not just care. You care for your group and members of your group, but now universal care. You care for all groups, for all humans, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. Now that's new, and that involved a capacity to literally take a third person perspective. And so particularly in overall human growth and development, when the leading edge of culture started reaching those universal care stages, then we really started to see some profound changes in how cultures were organized and what we considered to be rights of individuals and who had rights and, and who didn't. And her highest stage, so we call that world-centered. Mm -hmm. so we've gone from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centered. And then her highest stage simply called integrated. And that was where the woman integrates both masculine and feminine ways of knowing. And we all often just call that uh, an integral stage. So you have this egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to integral stages of development. And again, when you're at one of those stages, you'll be interpreting whatever experience you have according to those fundamental rules, but you'll have no idea you're doing it. And it won't seem like you are in any way interpreting reality, you're just reporting on it. It's just sort of the way it is. So if you're at, for example, an ethnocentric stage of growing up and you have a profound peak experience of waking up. So here you are, you're a fundamentalist Christian, let's say, and you have this profound peak experience that you are one with the ground of all being. You are one with Christ. You have Christ consciousness. You have a direct, immediate, ultimate unity experience. And you can do that if, even if you're a, a fundamentalist. That kind of experience is certainly possible. Actually happens quite a bit. But you will think that somebody else can have that experience if and only if they accept Jesus Christ as their personal savior. Mm -hmm. And it really doesn't make sense. If you're a real fundamentalist Christian, it just doesn't work for you that there are like Hindus in heaven. <laughs> that's, just, that's just not going to fit. So you've had this authentic waking up experience, but this is how you're going to carry it. This is how you're actually going to be interpreting it. Now, if you had moved on to a world-centric stage of growing up and you have that experience that, and you not interpreting it ethnocentrically, but world-centrically, 
It also just happens to mean that you move from a mythic literal stage of interpretation to a rational, a formal operational stage of cognition. Now you will look at Jesus Christ, for example, not as being the one and only true son of the one and only creator of the entire universe. Rather, from a world-centric perspective, Jesus Christ is one of a number of authentic teachers. And there are several authentic teachers uh, around the world. And all of them have, um, have something important to say uh, in, in their own way. And you're fine with all of that. You happen to be more attracted to the Christian version. And so that's what, that's what you're practicing. And that's fine. And if you actually moved on to integral stages, you would start to be open to the whole notion that people have gone through a whole developmental spectrum of these kinds of things. And you have to take those into account. Now, that's exactly the kind of understanding that was not present in any of the waking up traditions. And as a matter of fact, as I say, that wasn't really formally understood, particularly in these sort of six to eight more sophisticated levels or stages of development. That really was figured out only about 100 years ago. And so, and then after those studies were being done, the developmental psychologists were, were basing their their results on actual data. I mean, they're actually out interviewing people, talking to people, getting an idea about how, what their worldviews are, how they interpret things, what they mean, and so on. What they didn't find was a large number of people who had taken up specific voluntary practices of waking up, and it had their consciousness actually move all the way from gross to settle to causal to aturia, aturia tita, ultimate unity consciousness, divine oneness. A very, very few of those people were found. And so most of the models, Western developmental models, stopped no. at, at just what we call second tier, which is a, the sort of highest of personal development. And beyond that, literally are sort of transpersonal stages of development. Very, very few Western developmental models have any understanding of those higher stages of development, and none of them understand states of consciousness. So they really don't have an understanding of waking up or awakening or satori or enlightenment or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And then likewise, if you look at the great contemplative traditions, East and West, pre-modern, modern, post-modern, post doesn't matter, they can be very, very sophisticated in those states of waking up. They have no concept at all of those stages of growing up. So we don't have a system anywhere in the world that includes both waking up and growing up. Mm -hmm. And that means, whether certainly not intentionally, but it means that humanity has been practicing, literally practicing throughout its entire history, practicing to be broken practicing being partial yeah. and not really including the full potential that they actually have available to them. And that is astonishing. And that's simply one of the things, of course, that makes anything resembling uh, a, a general type of integral or integrated approach that really does include things like waking up and things like growing up. And then We'll also add, we don't have to get sidetracked on this, but we mentioned psychoanalytic um, traditions actually work with things like shadow material. 
That's very real as well. There's an enormous amount of data on that. We call it that whole path cleaning up. And then we mentioned first, second, and third person, or the good, the true, and the beautiful. Those are very real. There are enormous number of disciplines that focus on just one of those. Those are actually a variation of what we call the four quadrants. And so we call including all of those showing up because you do want to show up for all of reality. And that includes ways that you can grow in first person. And that includes both waking up and growing up. And then it also includes second person and third person, third person notoriously being third person objective hypothetical deductive science. That's fine. That's real. We include that. So waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up are some of these fundamental areas, all of which have a staggering amount of evidence. It's just, they're just undeniable in their fundamental realities. And yet none of them have really, it just hasn't been a system that's developed that includes all of those. So the amount of data that these different knowledge communities have is just stunning. The problem is they're generally not aware of the other knowledge communities and the types of information that they're developing. But if you've already made this decision that everybody's right, then that's what you're going to be looking for. And so that, that's that's one of the things that, that we do. So I did want to mention that and, and particularly the importance of growing up in terms of bringing that to any process of waking up that we're at. Because the last thing I would say about that is that this waking up experiences can be in some ways a little bit misleading because it really does, some of them really do feel like literally one with absolutely everything that's arising. But for all time, all space, everywhere, everyone. And it's a, such an absolute fullness and completeness that it's sort of hard to imagine getting any fuller or, or completer. But those are experiences, and we can uh, I promise we'd get back to this in just a second, so slowly we're coming back to the waking up side of the street. Um, but one of the things that is... Um, uh, that you have to be careful of in these waking up experiences is that they really are, to put it in metaphysical terms, they really are plugging into this sort of infinite eternal ground of all being, um, aspects of which in, indeed appear to be infinite and appear to be eternal, all embracing. Um, and yet they really do tend to give, in terms of like objective information about the world, when the traditions say they're sort of ultimate truth and relative truth, these waking up experiences really do plug into that sort of ultimate ground of all being. They don't give that much information about relative truth. So the people that had, for example, um, uh, the first, when we get into sort of really sophisticated meditative systems, you get something like Zen Buddhism, and you get um, states called Satori, or these uh, direct, immediate experience of Turiyatita or ultimate unity consciousness. The per first people that had that experience, they're walking outside and they see the sun and they're walking on the earth and then all of a sudden, pow, they're one with all of that. They don't see the sun, they are the sun. They don't feel the earth, they are the earth. 
They're fundamentally one with every single thing that's horizon. And they think the sun goes around the earth and they think the earth is flat. And Satori doesn't change that. It doesn't fix that understanding. That Satori also told them nothing about atoms or molecules or cells or immune systems or neurophysiology or et cetera, et cetera. And he told them nothing about stages of growing up. So that is a problem we have to work with. And it's particularly when people first get on to some of these waking up practices and they really do start to get a sense that this is really plugging into something of absolute ultimate concern of a genuine ground of being. And I am plugged into that in such a deep and profound way. This is important. And it's one of the most important things I can do is share this with other people and, and make sure that they are having access to this type of Satori experience. And I would just say that's absolutely right. And make sure you understand where you are in growing up as well, because you don't want enlightened Nazis. That's right. <laughs> you can get that. That's a problem. So, um, so just that kind of, uh, generalized background, and and I now I promise we can go forward with the more this, interesting. Yeah, no, Ken, this is awesome. It's exactly the type of riff I wanted you to unload on because I mean, there's no one that, that, like you when it comes to this sort of thing. And oh my gosh, there's so much to say. Let me just touch on a couple of things that I thought were just so spot on and, and put the double exclamation point is, and you know, it's it's such a propensity that the egoic agenda has, the egoic mind, individual and collective to reduce. And so I look at what you're saying, you know, like the, the kind of colonization of Eastern um, and the colonization of Western ways of looking at reality. The, these are these are archetypal blind spots where it's a form of, of reductionism, where we reduce the entirety of our understanding to either a waking up trajectory or a growing up trajectory, completely unaware of, of the fact that, you know, when it, especially when it comes to these structures, we don't look at them, we look through them. And so they, they are the archetypal blind spots. And by definition, it's like you said earlier, you cannot introspect these things. You can sit on the meditation cushion until you're blue in the face and you will never see one of these things because we, you're not using the methodology as you talked about that wasn't even available until 100 years ago. And so this, this form of reductionism to me, I think is super important, especially for um, so-called Eastern spiritual practitioners where we, it's so easy to dismiss, you know, the, the uh, kind of scientific approach, the physical approach, and, and, and poo-poo reductionism as it comes to science in the West, but completely unaware of how the traditions that we may be studying are, are blind to their own forms of reductionism, like reducing everything. You know, in the West, we reduce everything to, to like you say, frisky dirt. Right. Um, in, the, in the East, they reduce everything to karma. And karma doesn't explain everything, just like science doesn't explain everything. These subtle forms of reductionism are kind of like this, you know, subversive egoic agenda. And the other thing, Ken, that you said that is so important and terrific for you to bring it out is that we are, in a very real way, we are always meditating. We're always practicing whether we know it or not. And, and the, de the Tibetan definition for meditation here is, is revelatory because the word, as you probably know, is transliterated gom, G-O-M. And it's very provocative. It means to become familiar with. 
And the idea with meditation, um, especially in this larger scope, is whether we know it or not, and using the code language that we're doing with our stuff here, whether we're lucid to it or not, we are always meditating. And so if we place in front of us, you know, the mind is always becoming increasingly familiar with whatever it attends to. It's like well, what William Jane says, you know, reality is what you attend to. And so if you're only a, a, aware and really, the, you could say that the unwitting uh, victim of a um, stage approach or a, or a state approach to realization, you are practicing that um, all the time. And hence, we are virtuosos in the art of, you know, I talk about non-lucidity. We're the, we're the virtuosos of the art that we spend our entire lives practicing. And then, you know, I, this is important, I think, to um, also talk about because this shows or can reveal why it is so hard, in fact, to wake up, to gain this type of stability, because you can't turn the Titanic around on the dime. There's all this momentum, what you talked about so beautifully in integral spirituality is, you know, cosmic grooves that right. we we unwittingly default in a double entendre extent. We fall into these grooves that we have cut our entire lives, that we cut every time we look at the world in this way that our culture has pre-cut for us that our society and um you know world view has cut for us and so by understanding that we can gain a greater sense of appreciation sense of humor levity about just what's involved to fully actualize the stages of, of waking up that we may have these peak experiences but as houston smith so beautifully put it, you know, the, the, the process of the path is to transform these flashes of illumination into a biting light. And so by understanding exactly the things you're putting forth here, not only does it bring tremendous explanatory power to how complex and inclusive our waking up, growing up, cleaning up, showing up path has to be. Um, and also, you know, to reveal what I talk about is the forces of the dark side, you know, how it is that we, we are so enculturated to look at the world in this particular way. So um, I can only say bravo to this, this tremendous long elevator ride. Of your yeah. But let's get back, if, if you're okay with this, Kim, I really want to come back to um, your sharing a little bit more about your personal journey here, um, because yeah. I, it carries a lot of impact for practitioners and, you know, in my tradition, and you have some Buddhist background as well, as you know, we're sometimes admonished not to share. But I, I think sharing, if it's done as an offering, if it's delivered with the, the beauty that you do in, in one taste, I mean, I read that stuff. I don't see it as a self-aggrandizing gesture. I see it as a gesture of, of generosity. And so in that spirit, for people who are somewhat new to lucid dreaming, and in particular, this outrageous claim of lucid sleep, if you could talk to us a little bit about your own personal journey with that, whether it was mostly kind of a serendipitous um, set of experiences, whether you actually practice dream yoga or sleep yoga as part of your spiritual curriculum, I think um, people would really be inspired by that kind of first-person sharing. If it was okay to do. Yeah, of course. Um, and it's sort of, I think this, um, this whole notion about... Um, not talking um, about these kinds of experiences. We certainly want to be careful of, of a certain type of um, aggrandizement that 
can go go with something like that. Um, but it's also given just the whole culture, um, certainly of the Western world, and especially of a place like America, um, is you really don't think you can move forward without talking about this, do you? I mean, in this culture, not talking about something is to announce that it's not real. Yeah. Um, so we have to kind of step into this a little bit carefully. Yep. Also, it should be part of, as these kinds of waking up realities become uh, more understood, I mean, I still just find it shocking that you can have these things called ultimate truths and relative truths, and we've apparently attempted to build a civilization based on nothing but relative truth. That's insane in, in, in some ways. So as we start to look into these more inclusive types of dimensions and realities, and especially because they really is a very broadly speaking type of scientific methodology that goes with these paths of, of waking up. You're not asked to just believe something or accept a mythic belief or a dogma. You, you actually, I mean, science itself sort of has three broad um, aspects to it. The first is it's paradigm-based. Paradigm doesn't mean what people generally think it means. It's not a big super theory. Right. Creates facts. Um, it's an actual practice. It's something you have to do. It's an injunction. Thomas Kuhn got so upset with how people were using the term paradigm that he himself stopped using it. He changed it to the name exemplar. Mm-hmm. And exemplar is just that it's an exemplary injunction. So I mean, if you want to know if it's raining outside, go to the window and look. Going to the window and looking, that's the paradigm. That's the example. That's the action you have to take if you want to know something. If you do that, then you get the second part, which is data. As William James pointed out, data means direct experience. So the second part is follow the correct injunction, and that will lead you to an experience, a data, an illumination of some sort. Actually, give some sort of experiential evidence. And then the third step is compare that data you've got with other people who've also followed the first step. They've done the injunction. They've done the experiment, whatever it is you're supposed to do. They've gathered some data. Now you compare and contrast. Wrong, you reject it. If it's right, then you temporarily include it and carry it forward. That's what the great meditative traditions have done. They all have practices. First, learn to meditate. Get in this position. Do this with your mind. Focus on this. Count your breath from one to ten. Do that continuously until you can do it for an hour. Do that for five years and come back and talk to me. So it's actually paradigm-based as real exemplars. And those exemplars need to direct data, direct illumination, and those can be compared. The whole idea that mystical experiences or spiritual experiences in general aren't real, they're private, and, and so they, they, they can't be public or they can't be shared, 
is absolutely nonsensical. I mean, even Zen Buddhism, for example, has been carried forward for a thousand years, precisely because anything that can be practiced can be shared. Uh, I mean, you can learn to do judo. You can't put it in words, but you can do it. So these are very, very real experiences, and they are based on paradigms. You have to do this practice in order to get this illumination. So that indeed was something that I started doing quite um, quite early. The, all the way back to the time that I had looked at um, essays in Zen Buddhism and then went on to just devour everything I could in that field um, to end up contacting uh, the Zen masters that I could find in America at that time. And at the end of the 60s, you know, it, it still was relatively rare um, to find these things. Um, I mean, the Beatles had just kind of made Maharishi, you know, Mahashyogi uh, famous. And, and so that was kind of started. Um, but it wasn't as available as obvious as, as it was today. And I actually spent a lot of time uh, contacting, writing various Zen masters. Um, and I had, <laughs> I wrote one, like, 14-page um, discussion of, of my understanding of Buddhism and how I read the Lankavatara Sutra and this is what I thought of that and all, you know, it's this endless kind of stuff. And I caught a letter and I wanted to be, you know, assigned a comment. And I actually got a letter back from the gentleman. He actually responded, gave me a koan, said, follow these three steps. And the second step was in essence, um, be able to, to do the first step is when I'm aware of Cohen, then I'm not aware of anything else. I'm just aware of the Cohen. And the second step is there's just the Cohen. So that was sort of the hard step. And mm-hmm. in a, what I, I, what could have been a somewhat um, dismissive sense, he basically contacted me when he did step two. Uh, which could take, you know, two years or three years or something like that. Um, but I eventually did. I went on, um, indeed, to to take up these spiritual practices. And I've basically done it very, very seriously, um, more or less um, every day of my life since uh, my late teens. Um, and I particularly, um, in, in the first half of that, there was a, focus on Zen Buddhism, and in the second half of that, there was a focus on Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism, but I was also, I would practice literally dozens of, of other spiritual teachers, and I, I took all of it extremely seriously, and I still do, and certainly. Um, the practices, and that included a point, particularly as I got into Tibetan Buddhism, where I was doing um, dream yoga, and, and very intentionally attempting to carry awareness into the dream state mm-hmm. uh, and that indeed um, after a fair amount of, of working at that it, it starts to um, pay off I mean you actually do start to get those kinds of very very clear lucid dreams and again what it what was starting particularly to happen and this was just even from my uh, first 
uh, little bitty but genuine Satori or Kensho. Um, these, it was particularly a, a, a delving into indeed this, this consciousness itself. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't just what objects am I aware of. It was who is aware of that. And of course, you have people like Ramana Maharshi who define ultimate reality as the I-I, I-I, meaning the self that's aware of your small self. So if you just you know, get a sense of who you are right now and somebody describe who you are and you say, well, well, my name is this, I'm this old, I weigh this much, um, I make this much money, I have this kind of education, I mean, you know, all this list of things. And those are all things that can be seen. But who is it to see? Who's the actual? Zen Master Shibayama call it absolute subjectivity. Mm -hmm. And that itself gets tricky because absolute subjectivity transcends the individual subject and object. So it's this pure awareness that itself can't be made an object. And if you're trying to find this true self, this real self, if you see anything, that's not it. That's it, exactly. It's a pure seeing, that pure awareness. And that awareness itself is unqualifiable. Because if you're qualifying it, you're making it an object. You're making it seen. And it's not that it's not that. It's just it's not just that. Um, so it often is described as, as a pure emptiness. But emptiness itself doesn't mean formless. Emptiness means radically unqualifiable. So it's neither form, nor formless, nor both, nor neither. It's just sort of endlessly unqualifiable in that sense. So that's why then when you sort of talk about it metaphysically, mm -hmm. that you will start to sort of push in the fact that you're getting in touch with some sort of ground of the, some sort of ultimate reality. And that's why the traditions actually do call it ultimate reality, not relative reality. And you also have to be a little bit careful about just how you interpret that. So one of the things, for example, is you'll commonly hear, and this is just a, a bunch of metaphysics, and the actual experience itself is anything like this. This is just one way to um, think about this stuff. But um, it's often described as infinite and eternal. Infinite does not mean a really, really, really big space. It means a point without space, a spaceless, dimensionless point. And because infinity is itself spaceless, all of infinity, 100% of infinity, will fit in every single finite point in space. Hmm. So the infinity that's right here isn't different from the infinity on the other side of the Earth. It's not different from the infinity at the sun or at Alpha Centauri. I mean, it's the same infinity, 100% of it fits in every single finite point everywhere. And therefore, if you discover infinity right here, you've discovered it everywhere. And so that's the sort of infinite part of it. It's the same thing is true with the eternal part. Eternity does not mean what people often think it means. It's not a really, really, really long time. I mean, if that were the case, you'd never be able to have an eternal experience of eternal 
spiritual um, experience unless we lived forever. And that's right. not right. Eternity is to time as infinity is to space. In other words, eternity is not a really long time. It's a point without time. It's often called a timeless now. And that's because, again, because eternity is itself timeless, 100% of eternity gets to every point of time. And that means that if you discover eternity right now, you've discovered it for all time. And so it's not because it's existing forever. It's exists prior to the full stream of time. So, um, I mean, even Ludwig Wittgenstein right. nailed it when it comes to eternity. And this is a, this is a quote from the Tractatus of all things. Exactly. If we get eternity to mean not everlasting temporal duration, but a moment without time, an eternal life belongs to those who live in the present. Now, that's exactly right. And that's why that cliche here now, that's why that really does speak a certain fundamental cliche truth. That's all of infinity is right here and all eternity is right now. And so when you start to have these kinds of experience, you are starting to push into that spaceless, timeless realm. Because it's spaceless and timeless, it absolutely embraces all of space and time. It's absolute all-inclusive in that sense. And again, one of the, and this, this, I'm mentioning all of this because this is directly what I was becoming more and more focused on. And this is whole nature of this fundamental, ultimate ground, pure emptiness or pure suchness or thusness. And the way that it was in almost paradoxical sense, absolutely all inclusive, even though it told me nothing about atoms or molecules or cells or distant planets or anything like that. It just told me the fundamental reality that they were all manifestations of. We always run into the notion in these great mystical traditions that this reality that we're supposed to get in touch with is actually something that is always already the case. We can't avoid it. Yeah, 100% of the enlightened mind is present right now, in us right now. And so you can look at even something like the timeless now. There's certainly a sense in which there is a practice of just focusing on the past and present. That's a real practice. It's important. It's a gateway to a a lot of different kinds of states. But it's also just this ultimate background state that this timeless now is something that you're 100% in touch with right now anyway, whether you realize it or not. And that is the case. So if you right now feels like you're sort of existing in this temporal stream and there's this whole past behind you, there's this whole future. So think of anything from your past at all and just get a good image of it, get a good memory of it. Notice that that image of the past exists right now and when that past was actually real it was a right now so in no event are you actually aware of the past you're only aware of right now and 
The same is true of the future. You think of anything from the future. That thought exists right now. If it ever actually happens, that'll be a right now. In no case are you aware of anything but the timeless now. You don't have to get into that. It's all you're ever aware of. It's not hard to get in touch with. It's impossible to avoid. And that's where it does get paradoxical. Because in a certain sense, the traditions would say, so it's like you really don't need like a Satori. You're already enlightened. The Paramita Sutras say all the time, just realize that enlightenment is unattainable. But you, in a certain paradoxical sense, you need a Satori to understand that you don't need Satori. And that's the whole sort of fundamental paradox that you get into with these waking up traditions, which is that on the one hand, this absolute ground of all being, because it is the ground of all being, is 100% present at every finite temporal moment of space-time there is. I mean, that by definition. Yeah. You also can be aware of that. You cannot be aware of that. And even though in a, in a very sort of technical sense, even your unawareness of it is still actually aware of it. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, it does, it does make an enormous amount of practical sense that you have to actually have these types of satori realizations. Yeah. This is this... This is so unbelievably healthy. It's really what you're hitting here today is what the Tibetans talk about is nintake, you know, penetrating the vital points, the heart essence. And, and I, I have to just put another exclamation point about this for our listeners because you will spend your entire life coming to the eventual conclusion of what Ken just said here. This is a, 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 a fundamental conclusion of the deepest traditions of Kashmir Shaivism, um, Buddhism, Advaita Vedanta. And it's this unbelievable, as they say in the Mahamudra tradition, as you know, Ken, you know, um, it's so obvious we don't see it. It's so simple we don't believe it. It's so easy we don't trust it. And it's largely because of the complex nature of the modern mind, the complexity and the speed, that we have such a hard time believing in the utter obviousness of the whole thing. And I want to say just a little bit about this, Ken. Because, again, it's so incredibly important, and it's the seed of, of what I want to bounce off of you um, here, is that this, the fundamental irreducible instruction, um, if I can paraphrase what you're saying, for the entire spiritual path, and by the way, this is exactly the same instruction what would constitute a good death, is relaxation. If the fundamental, you know, if you look at the logic of what you're saying here as a spokesperson for the wisdom traditions, and, you know, uh, speaking from your own experience, if in fact this is, is who you already are, if it's already part of you, how can you attain something you already have or possess or are? The only thing you can do is open to it. And since, you know, hence my favorite working definition of meditation these days is habituation to openness, opening to this dimension that's always within you. And I want to say this, uh, and then I'll turn it back to you about your, your own personal experience of this, is that this is... Such a foundational point for me, Ken, um, that what I'm working on, you know, the, I'm, I'm doing a, a dream trilogy, a three books on, on this idea of lucid dreaming, and you so generously endorsed my first book. Second book is at the publisher, but the third book is one that is intimately connected to what we're talking about here. Um, it's tentatively called The Lost Temple of Sleep, Integral Dream Yoga and the Path of Awakening. And, and what we do here that is so resonant with what you're talking about, and that's why it's a segue, 
is that there are two ways to look at awareness or lucidity. Like, for instance, if we're talking about things like lucid dreaming, um, you, there's a relative way, the path of effort, where you learn the techniques, you learn the methods, you do it. And yes, you get some results. But the lesser known approach is the more absolute approach, which is the path of relaxation, the path of effortlessness. And so what I put forth here, and I would love to see what you think about this, is that my argument um, in this tone that I'm working on from an integral perspective is that if, in fact, lucidity, i.e. awareness, is the natural space, how did we get so non-lucid? It's exactly what you're talking about at the beginning of our conversation when you talked about you know, how pissed off you got when you were you realize, well, why didn't anybody tell me this before? You know, why was my culture not informing me of this? And so what, what I elect to do using your remarkable template of the, of the four quadrants is to really unpack the forces of the dark side, which are formidable. You know, the social um, forces, the cultural forces, the biological forces, you know, the, the, the outer forces are so powerful, they actually stamp and ingrain the biological forces, and then of course we got the, the phenomenological um, quadrant. So you have all four of these. And so my charter here is that very much in the spirit of Sun Tzu and the art of war, know thy enemy. If you can know and reveal the forces of the dark side, you can transform those enemies into friends and, and fundamentally have the trust that on one level, the only thing I need to do to have a lucid dream, to have lucid sleep, or to wake up altogether is just relax into the already always present um, awake nature of my very being. So I had to throw that in there because this to me, if there is a central point to the whole shebang as I've come to understand it over you know 45 years, you just nailed it. So I had to throw that in. Well, you know, that's exactly the point. Um and it really, it, got, it always will have that kind of paradoxical sound to it. Because when we're really, I mean, most of the concepts that we have um, are usually, they, they make sense only in terms of their opposite. So even we say formless, well, versus form, uh, infinite versus finite. Um, pleasure versus pain, good versus evil, in versus out, left versus right. I mean, just sort of this endless kind of sea of, of opposites. But ultimate reality, of course, doesn't have an opposite. So that's why it really is, quote, empty. And again, empty doesn't mean without form. Uh, for Nagarjuna, of course, you just pick any quality you think might be ultimate. Uh, the good, the true, the beautiful, love, whatever, call that X. And Nagarjuna's whole point is that reality is neither X, nor non-X, nor both, nor either. Like, get the point? So and, and the, whole, the whole point about that dialectic was that it ends with the, quote, awakening of this non-dual form, prajna, or, or non-dual, quote, unity. Um, awareness, and that is paradoxically, that's the one thing that you've always been aware of, and that's one of the things that you realize with the really profound satori is not only wow, it, it, this is like ultimate reality, but it's also I, I've always known this, 
I, that's exactly it. I knew this. How could I possibly have forgotten this? And so it does tend to have this kind of paradoxical orientation precisely because ultimate reality is going to embrace every possible opposite we think of, and therefore it's always going to sound paradoxical. There's always a paradox of construction, and, and that's just something that, that, that we have to understand. And it certainly has to do with things like dream yoga, or certainly and getting into lucid dreaming or pellucid dreaming. Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand, you can indeed have a satori type of realization in the waking state. And again, that is plugging you right into an infinite eternal ground. And that ground is radically all-inclusive. Everything that's arising is arising on that ground or as a manifestation of that ground or a modification of that ground or whatever version of opposites you want to use to try and describe something that's not happening as, as an opposite. Um, but that is uh, a realization that you can have. And paradoxically, you can increase the number of relative states that you have that you are aware of this ultimate state. So you really can have a realization of an absolute consciousness or an absolute subjectivity or a ground of all being in the waking state. Mm-hmm. You can also carry that into the dream state. And as I was saying earlier, one of the things that becomes interesting about that is, is just not the kind of different objects that you see. But in the back of all that, the similarity, so to speak, of this ever-present, natural I amness, pure, simple prehension, pure, simple, given awareness. And that does turn out to be an ever-present ground. And what starts to happen, well, again, first of all, you can realize that ever-present ground by Anytime you have an authentic satori kind of experience in the waking state, but you can also start to push it into an increasing number of relative states. And what that does, besides giving you information about those relative states, is help you start to really realize that ultimate, that ever present state, because that's the thing that continues to be constant and real throughout mm-hmm. all of those changes of state. Mm-hmm. That's why Ramana Maharshi would say, if it's not present in deep dreamless sleep, it's not real. Mm-hmm. Now, he doesn't mean that you have to get into just deep dreamless sleep and then whatever you're experiencing there is real. But he does mean whatever's really, really real will be present in that state. And if it's not, it's not ever present by definition so that's one of the things that starts happening as you start pushing in to these different states is realize what is it that isn't itself a different state but it's present in all states yeah it's beautiful because it points out the other immediacy of it all doesn't it Ken? that, that well, yeah exactly it's, it's, and, and it also gives you 
um, again, you can start to sort of frame this using terms, although the direct awareness itself, of course, is going to be beyond any term that you can come up with. But it does have emptiness. It has always worked as a good metaphor because this does, it's empty in the almost concrete sense that it's not just a separate concrete thing or event that's happening. It's nete, nete, it's not this, not that. But it's also in the Nagarjuna sense, it's just, it's unqualifiable. Nothing you can say about it will work, including what I just said. So, I mean, that's just the absolute freedom yeah. and absolute. Uh, ultimate freedom of, of this state is bound by absolutely nothing. That's absolutely. So how can how can we help people, Ken? Because I mean, I, I could not agree with you more, my dear friend. But how can we help listeners? You know, the so-called pointing out instructions. So either in the domain of the waking space, uh, either in the domain of meditation, or whatever you think might be able to kind of help. Um, people connect to that which they fundamentally can't disconnect from. I mean, what what are, are some um, pearls that you might recommend so people can, you know, access the immediacy and, and gain some level of recognition of it? Well, right. And that, of course, is um, what some of the traditions like the Dzogchen tradition in Tibetan Buddhism um, have sort of uh, specialized in, in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they generally recognize um, what could broadly be called um, a path of recognition and then a path of meditation. And meditation is we actually work to bring something into being that isn't present now. And a path of recognition is just to recognize what's already present. And you don't have to bring that into awareness, although you do paradoxically need to recognize that. And so there are um, a number of those things are have also sort of, you can find, um, have become sort of fairly common questions that you'll see in other traditions. So one of them, for example, is just who am I? Mm-hmm. So really, again, you can sort of, you actually, what do you feel is your self right now? If you look at this I amness that you're feeling right now, what is that? I amness. What is that very, very sense of just pure presence, pure immediacy? And again, if it's any object, if it's anything you can see, that's not it. So it's not I am this or I am that, but just that pure I amness before you're anything else. What is that? And that, of course, is is, is a fairly common um, type of inquiry that mm-hmm. a lot of meditation traditions will use. Who am I? Who is it that repeats the name of Buddha? Where is Christ's consciousness? Before Abraham was, I am. That's exactly right. That's what timeless means. Um, Show me your original face, the face you had before your parents were born. That doesn't mean that your original face, your true self, your I amness, doesn't mean that it existed in a chronological stream of time before your parents existed in that stream of time, it means it doesn't exist in the stream of time at all. It's timeless. It's prior to that unfolding of past, present, future. And that's the I am that before Abraham was I am. That's my original face. Mm -hmm. And that simple inquiry, okay, who 
who am I? Not as an object. What's the absolute subjectivity that's seeing this? What is the actual awareness that's happening right now? Uh, combined with that is an understanding of, okay, what is it that's present in my awareness right now that was present 10 minutes ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, okay. So certain things, certainly some of the objects are all different. I might be sitting in the same room. So those are the same. But also 10 minutes ago, you had, a, there was a sense of I amness. That I amness that you can feel right now. You can totally feel your I amness right now. And you can recognize, yeah, that was present 10 minutes ago. Um, it was even, it was present 10 years ago. It was even if I actually pushed down into that real core I am this prior in the timeless now. This existed 10,000 years ago. It existed prior to the Big Bang. It existed prior to time. This whole manifestation of past, present, future really is a timeless now moment. And that pure presence is something that doesn't change. That is the quote, boundless, changeless nature Mm -hmm. of that ever present state. And one of the things that happens as you start doing things like allow that natural present awareness to extend into a dream state, and then you allow that to continue to exist into the dreamless state, and you do start to get a sense of that constant consciousness, is that that becomes just a very graphic realization in the stream of time, about that which is timeless. Mm-hmm. So it's actually, it's not in a sense simply everlastingness per se. It's that timeless eternity that's at the core of every single moment that exists. And if you start to actually push it and say, okay, well, is that would that actually mean, for example, that even in the relative realm, that that consciousness is present at, at every single point of existence, because if you if you sort of look at it from the from that relative angle, and you do realize that well, yes, you do have consciousness through waking, dreaming, deep sleep. So in that sense, it's, it's present at, at all those relative states. But also, then if you push it into a literal belief in something like reincarnation. Right. It also existed between different lifetimes as well. Right. I mean, sort of constant consciousness in an almost literal sense is paradoxically true in the relative realm as well. I mean, we say the same material universe is here. Well, in the same sense, that same ever-present constant consciousness uh, was here as well. And you don't literally have to experience just going on in the stream of time through all these different states. Again, when you have a a profound Satori-like experience, you really are experiencing the spaceless, timeless ground that's present at every point of space and time. But you can, along the lines of this uh, paradox instruction, you really can start to push it into that which really is constant at different states. And that's why something like relaxing into openness 
becomes a, 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 an authentic type of paradigm or exemplar or practice. Because again, on the one hand, what you're, what you're ultimately saying is the state that you're trying to get into, that's actually ever present. And all you have to do is relax into it. You don't have to create it. It's just a matter of, of stopping your contracting in the face of experience and open to every single thing and event that's arising and just relax into that pure presence moment to moment. And that is something that you can steadily increase your capacity to do that. And as you relax into that openness, that openness is a synonym for emptiness. It's a synonym for absolute objectivity. It's a synonym for natural, ongoing, ever-present awareness. And that openness can continue into a dream state. And it can continue into a deep dreamless state. And you can actually get that whole constant chronological sense of openness to whatever is arising moment to moment and that can be done that's an actual practice you're not literally getting in touch with the ground of all being in a in a um in a ontologically greater and greater sense all of it is still 100 present all the time mm-hmm. but you are in that paradox of instruction opening yourself to that openness And you can do that as an actual practice. And you can bring that emptiness into the world of form. So that which is form is not other than emptiness. That which is emptiness is not other than form. You're overcoming that whole world of opposites. That's why so many of the other Christian mystics refer to that ultimate ground as the coincidentia oppositorum, the coincidence of opposites, the unity of opposites. That is the non-duality of opposites and that includes this whole relaxing into that ever-present state and so that's what makes this whole meditation practice is so interesting they're practicing something that's already present but it's an actual practice it actually has an effect and you actually do need to get satori to really realize why you don't need satori yeah and that also uh, it makes it a little bit hard to turn into a slogan <laughs> it doesn't fit on a bumper sticker Gary. it's you can't put it on just one t-shirt you know it takes at least 10 t-shirts to explain that one um it's real and it's there yeah so ken speak a little bit uh, this is so rich i can't tell you i mean a couple of things it's like what we're we started our conversation with the power of inquiry you know the types of questions that um, answer which can change your life. Oh my God. Well, here's the question. Who am I? I mean, that's just one, but speak a little bit about um, if you would, the, the affective component of this realization, because I think what, what tends to happen sometimes, especially with, with traditions like Zen, which I'm a huge fan of, even though, you know, the rabbit I chase is Tibetan Buddhism, but sometimes the, one of the, the criticisms can be, Oh, it's cognitive. It's cerebral. You know, people often forget that uh, the word chitta in both uh, Pali and Sanskrit is the same word for both mind and heart. Right. So, for when we talk about mindfulness, it's really heartfulness. But there's a common criticism: oh, it's all just you know mental gymnastics. And so, if you could speak a little bit about 
levels of recognition from an affective component. So like when you touch into this, how do you know emotionally, affectively that you're touching into that space? Yeah, I mean, and and because people do tend to forget that um, common descriptions of uh, of this ultimate ground in um, Vedanta, for example, it's Sat Chit Ananda. So yes. Sat is being, uh, Chit is consciousness awareness, and Ananda is bliss, ecstasy, and that's very much uh, an emotion in a sense. And what you sort of get are, are two major kinds of emotional tones mm-hmm. that um, in a certain sense are just as you have an awareness of enlightenment, there's a feeling of enlightenment. Beautiful. Two really major, major um, feelings that you find mentioned most often. And frequently they do coincide with these sort of two ultimate states of consciousness. So relative states, states like waking, dreaming, deep sleep, or gross, subtle, and causal. Those Mm -hmm. are relative because they do have a beginning in time. They come, they stay a while, they leave. They're different from other states. Um, And the states themselves, you can't really put them together that well. I mean, you can't be like drunk and sober at the same time. Um, and, and so states are often exclusionary. Mm-hmm. And the two ultimate states, Turiya and Turiya those are ultimate because those are ever-present. So whether you realize it or not, there is this pure witnessing, ever-present awareness. There is a Turiya, and it's unqualifiable. It's radical emptiness. And that's there, again, whether you recognize it or not, that's all you ever have is that pure I am this. And that is a radical freedom from all objects, anything that can be seen, felt, thought, known. It's not the seen, it's the seer. It's not something felt, it's the feeler. It's not anything known, it's no, it's the pure witness of everything that's arising. And that carries an enormous sense of freedom. Mm-hmm. And that freedom is often felt as uh, a great deal of joy, a great deal of release, a great deal of happiness. Indeed, a type of ananda, even ecstatic, blissful feeling. And that's a very, very common feeling that people have when they have any sort of major realization experience. Um, And sometimes it's like every cell is just ecstatic and alive and it's alive with this profound happiness yeah. and it's a, it's happy precisely because it's free it's nete nete it's not this it's not that so no matter what's happening in the exterior world there's this background joy this background happiness this joy of pure i amness and it's a joy due to that absolute utter freedom that that I amness has. And that's a direct and immediate kind of overwhelming emotion and itself is part of that witnessing ground. And so if you're resting in that pure witness, is that subtle joy of being 
that is there. And then whether an actual small state of sadness or unhappiness or depression or fear or anxiety, that can still arise, but you're not that. You're not fundamentally identified with that. So I have sensations. I'm not sensations. I have thoughts. I'm not thoughts. I'm just pure radical freedom. It's happy in that freedom. And can stay and will stay happy regardless of what experiences I'm having. That tends to be that ecstasy, that bliss, that ananda tends to be the feeling of freedom inherent in the witness. And so that's a that's a very real quote emotional um, background type of state. And it really is an emotion that comes with yeah. not this, not that. Then as you move into Turiatita, mm-hmm. where the whole sense of just being this pure witness in some ways tends to dissolve so that I'm not witnessing everything. I literally one with everything. So I no longer witness the mountain. I am the mountain. And I no longer see the clouds. I am the clouds. And I no longer feel the earth. I am the earth. There is this background, quote, ultimate unity, consciousness. And that's an all-embracing type of, well, where the witness tends to be that sense of freedom. Mm-hmm. This all-embracing unity is a sense of fullness. Mm-hmm. And the emotion that tends to go with that is indeed this all-inclusive love, this absolute love embrace, where you are literally hugging the entire universe in a radical overflow love. And a very common, um, of course, metaphor, name for uh, ultimate, God is love. That's where that emotion comes from. And that's a very, very real emotion. And it's an emotion. It's love with a capital L. So that means just like that sort of fundamental happiness of, of awareness is not dependent upon the smaller states of happy, sad, joy, up, down, etc. to come and go. This capital L love, it literally is love that the ground of all being has for all being. And that's the whole point that loving oneness is what the ground of all being does Mm. and so it really is love with a capital l so that includes a small l love where you just love this particular thing i love that person or i love ice cream or whatever it is and it's also separate from hate small h hate so it's love and hate uh pleasure and pain good and bad those all arise on this background of all embracing all inclusive love and that love really is, it can be almost hard to adapt to. It's part of what people, in a sense, have to kind of feel their way into when it comes to these ultimate states. But as far as this all-embracing love goes, it means I love my friends, and I love my colleagues, and I love traveling, and I love global warming, and I love terrorism, and I love nuclear war. I love everything that's arising is embraced in this all-inclusive love. And that's what makes it a sense of absolute fullness. You can't get any fuller 
than that fullness. And it is a radiant, generally spoken of as a heart-centered, loving embrace. Yeah. That. And so along with this freedom and fullness comes this ananda, this ecstatic happiness, and Mm -hmm. love, this radiant, all-embracing, overflowing, superabundant, loving uh, embrace. And these are very real feelings in that sense. And they go along with uh, sort of more, quote, cognitive, mind, awareness sort of aspects. Those are absolutely real as well. Although, again, these are all just metaphors for something that is radically empty in, in terms of sheer unqualifiability. But happiness and love are the real feeling sides of enlightenment. And that's what it feels like to do that. You are radically, unreasonably happy, and you are helplessly in love with everything that's arising. Beautiful. That's not a bad place to be. Yeah, you know, it's not a bad place to be. I have to share with you, um, there's a there's a wonderful book coming out, Ken, that, that I had a little bit of, of a role in by Mingyur Rinpoche, who's one of the rock stars in the Western world. I'm sure you know him, son of Tukuruji Rinpoche, where he goes through this extraordinary near-death experience on the streets of India. And the title of the book is, is the, you know, the conclusion he comes to after he goes through this kind of bardo journey. Literally, the title of is In Love with the World, where he comes back from that space and, and sees the trees is made of love and the mountain is made of love and even the dirt and the grid of India is made of love. And I think I want to insert something a little bit about this because what you alluded to, I think, is super important. I just want to point it out even further, is that if we don't take this realization, this uh, ananda, and if we don't bring it back with us to the world of form and then see it embedded in in what we would consider to be um, even non-spiritual experiences of old age, sickness, and death, it's very easy, and I'm sure you have seen this as much as I have, to fall into the host of spiritual pathologies. You know, you become a god addict. You, know, you become a victim of the Vishnu complex, as you put it. You slide into spiritual bypassing. Um, all the spiritual traps that are very seductive to a mind, again, that doesn't have a complete, this dovetails beautifully with integral approach to it. Because if your realization is purely disembodied, if it's just the bliss that comes about from the release of form, of freedom without the return into fullness, your realization is incomplete. As you know, in, in Buddhist terms, that's just getting stuck in the Dharmakaya. You're not kind of turning your realization back in through the voluntary involutionary descent back into form as a bodhisattva, as a tulku, as um, you know, a manifestation, an expression of that reality. And I have to throw that in because I see this more and more as a you know, 30, 40 year teacher of meditation that people come in, they have these meditative experiences. And it's a little bit like licking honey on a razor blade. You know, if you're not careful, you can you can um, find yourself basically replacing a chain made of lead with one made of gold, where you think, you know, I have to kind of come back to this juicy space um, instead of realizing in a very real way on one level. My teacher Campbell Rinpoche talked about this. You know, you you nurture your meditation by destroying it. In other words, 
you nurture the almost insatiable tendency for the ego to grasp after these experiences. And you basically have to reinstate the conditions that brought about the experience to begin with, which is a state of openness. And so I, I have to, to state that because I know it's a big part of your teaching as well. It's so easy for ego to slip in spiritual materialism, all the subtle traps and say, you know, uh, this is it. I'm only hanging out here and um, really in a certain sense, leaving out two thirds of reality, the Sambhogakaya and the Nirmanakaya. Um, right. and so exactly. And it's um, one of the ways that you can, you can sort of track this. And these are just very, very broad generalizations, but just as and. and and I, I mean, I mean, just very broad generalizations, but it, just as reminders, sort of get us in the ballpark. And that is when you look at original um, Buddhism itself and the, what it was um, generically attempting to do is that it really was trying to um, help people get into some of these truly formless states of a genuine cessation or neurone. Just no phenomena arising at all. And those states, they're not exactly the same, but they're similar-ish to deep dreamless sleep. They're formlessness. And they really are free of pain, free of suffering, free of ego, free of desire. We saw examples of the shocking examples of this during the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. where monks who were protesting the war would get into that state of neuro, in a sense, just a pure nirvana, a pure cessation state. Yep. had their bodies doused in gasoline and set on fire and they yep. burned to the ground in ashes and didn't blink once. Yep. That's cessation. That's yep. an absolute freedom from any manifestation. That's a real state. That was a very nirvana state. And that was the goal of Buddhism for six, seven hundred years into that state. And then Nagarjuna comes along and he says, again, I'm not saying that that's not real. Uh, it's there, it's real, but it's not the most ultimate, ultimate state. There's actually a state where you don't just go into nirvana and it's you ditch samsara. There's a state where nirvana and samsara are actually not two. And that which is emptiness is not other than form. That which is form is not other than emptiness. That which is nirvana is not other than samsara. That which is samsara is not other than nirvana. And so your goal is to actually stay in the realm of samsara and help other people realize that. It's not just to be an arahant. It's not just to go off and be a solitary realizer. Mm -hmm. This is a true non-dual uh, reality. And that change, that really does make a bodhisattva. It's fundamentally a bodhisattva is somebody who promises never to turn away from a human being. And, and, that has a fundamental emotional feeling of love, loving embrace. And you really do have to bring that back because, yes, you can get stuck in that absolute freedom of just completely free of everything that's arising. And you get into that state and you'll say, oh, for example, as I heard one, um, I mean, God bless it. I mean, I, I love all schools of Buddhism. I'm not... <laughs> critical in that sense, but uh, a very prominent um, Theravadan Buddhist was asked about the uh, environmental crisis, mm -hmm. and I, I don't care, I'm not coming back. Yeah, right. Yeah, and go, okay, well, yeah, you're also mm -hmm. not frightened, but that's uh, another story. Mm -hmm. um, 
but that really is the case. You really do have to take this Ananda, which is radically ecstatic, no matter what the hell is happening. Mm-hmm. And we have to unite that with the entire manifest world. It's not so Ananda. But you do do that through love. And it is the love that moves the sun and other stars. That's a real reality. And that is exactly when you push into your heart deep enough, that's what you run into. That's really real. And at that point, you're not escapist. You're not uh, getting off the wheel. You are getting into it. You are embracing it wholeheartedly and carrying forward it's an enormous enormous um difference yeah i can I, oh my god it's so beautiful it really to me again this ties into the whole bardo yoga thing that and again like I, I i'm not causing casting dispersions on any tradition but those who do espouse like the earlier schools buddhism and, and some traditions of hinduism no criticism here whatsoever but again it, it brings forth this kind of integrated approach that you know the the point is i've come to understand it and certainly based on what you're saying here the point is not to so much to get out of form to get out of rebirth the point is to get out of involuntary form involuntary rebirth which by the way is a double wonderful play on the on the term involution you know to become involved in and as form voluntarily and so i think this is incredibly important because otherwise People just want to hit the eject button, and it becomes a, a over or covert form of escapism. And you think, well, I, you know, I'm just going to Sakavati. I don't care about global warming. It's really, you know, if that is in fact your understanding, it is a misunderstanding, and your realization is not integrated. It's not integral. It's not complete. You have to bring that bliss, literally embody it, so that then every gesture you take. Every, every word that comes from your mouth is saturated with this compassion, which is what we know as a voluntary incarnation, a voluntary um, tuku, which is, yeah, I would say, the aspiration of, of fundamentally the, the spiritual path altogether and the vow of the bodhisattva. It's not to FedEx the consciousness to some pure land. It's to discover that the purity of uh, the awakened state exists in the filth. It exists in every aspect of manifest reality. Um, and until that becomes your experience, your, your realization is in fact not integrated, not complete. Well, I, yeah, I mean, the whole point about that which is emptiness is, is not other than form, that which is form is not other than emptiness. Um, and it does mean that which is nirvana is not other than samsara, that which is samsara is not other than nirvana. And that really does change the picture. Um, it's true that there is, in most conventional cases, we are living in a cave. There is a light outside the cave. It's casting shadows on the back of the cave. And all we're doing is just looking at shadows on the back of the cave. What we need to do is get enlightened. We need to find that light outside the cave. It's also the case, and author Lovejoy, who actually wrote the book called The Great Chain of Being, pointed mm-hmm. this out, Plato himself, maintain that ultimately the light and the shadows are not two. It's fundamentally a non-dual orientation. Find the same thing with something like, let's say, Shankara's summary of all of Vedanta. Three Mm -hmm. short sentences. The world is illusory. So, okay, got it. That's so much for samsara. Brahman alone is real. Got it. That's nirvana. And the Mm -hmm. third is Brahman is the world. Oops. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) That wow, how does that work? That's the paradox of instruction, but it does mean Brahman is the world. So what the hell are you doing trying to get off of it? You're avoiding Brahman. This is ridiculous. So these really were profound changes in the whole spiritual orientation of humankind. I mean, previously it was common, for example, that anything that had to do with like the the earth, the flesh, and certainly things like sex, you had to be celibate. Sex was bad. Sex was something that prevented spirit. For these new non-dual orientations, sex doesn't prevent spirit. Sex is a manifestation of spirit. Sex is actually a pathway to spirit. You get these whole tantric orientations that were non-duality in action. And that really fundamentally changes clearly our approach to the world from it being an illusion, which it is in one way, to it being Brahman, which it is ultimately. And it's absolutely crucial to understand that because both of those are states, so to speak, that we can get into. And given the just the whole shape of, of the world, what's happening, uh, the problems that it's facing, the issues that we have to deal with, you're no longer allowed to just get off the wheel and pretend that samsara is nothing but an illusion. It's not even ultimately real anymore. It's certainly not something that we want to uh, try to engage in and sell as any, as any sort of good idea. So that's important. I mean, we really do need uh, to add waking up to growing up and cleaning up and showing up, but we really do want to make sure it's a, a complete uh, and, and, and genuinely inclusive waking up. Yes, otherwise, otherwise you're, you're missing the game. So my dear friend, how, how is your energy? Are you up for um, one more little romp or are, are you you're sure. so you're so incredibly generous here it's like I, I mean i could i could go on for hours but i don't want to um <laughs> your energy are you cool with with changing directions just a little bit and talking about something or where's your speed of course okay cool so again so grateful for the the actual um outpouring of, of gems that you're coming uh, delivering to us. Uh, I, I do have one question that I, I want to unpack with you or unfold with you that that ties into um, something that you talk about with such elegance in, in um, the latter parts of integral spirituality. And, and here's the way I'm going to approach the question, and then um, I'm sure it'll trigger some uh, rather fluid comments from your part. And that is the following, and, and this also ties in very beautifully to almost everything we've talked about so far. And that is that when, when we are in the dream state, um, it's not terribly difficult to realize that we create reality. You know, sometimes in the dream world, they talk about this as lucid solipsism, you know, that, yeah, it's my mind in there and I'm creating it. And as you know, in the wisdom traditions, especially Buddhism, what they do with dream yoga is they use was called the example dream or the double delusion of the nighttime dream. You, uh, you know, kind of extrapolate and bring those insights back into the primary delusion or the real dream, the so-called um, waking reality. And so what I want to talk to you a little bit about is um, this idea of how we create reality in the dream state. Obviously, we do not do so in the waking state. 
where we interact with others, but we do co-create, we co-enact this world that we, you know, otherwise um, deem to be solid, lasting, and independent, you know, what you refer to as the myth of the given. And so what I think is incredibly important for people to understand, um, because it's so, it's so very empowering, it removes completely this kind of victim mentality that we are forever the victims of an, a cold, uncaring, flatland, physical, material world. You know, obviously a very perverted legacy of Western science, the deepest shadow side of Western science. And by understanding how it is, using the work of Varela et al., how it is that we co-enact this world and that as we evolve, our world evolves. Um, you know, we are not victims of an independent reality. We're victims of our projections upon that reality. And, and I think the practices of the night, the nocturnal practices, can reveal that to us. And so if you could speak a little bit about the kind of um, plasticity of the phenomenal world, that in fact, when one wakes up, one wakes up from a solid lasting and independent reality into a more fluid dream-like reality, which I think is a really interesting kind of paradox. You know, we wake up from the nightmare of reification into the reality of a dream-like world, which just to retrospect, uh, or insert this comment is one of the experience I've noticed when I touch into the awakened state through pointing out transmissions and the like, you know, a, both a cognitive and affective marker for me is the world appears to be more dreamlike or illusory when I'm experiencing this type of phase of mind. So if you could talk a little bit about this empowering nature of how it is that we bring about our uh, reality, we co-create it, we co-enact it so that we then realize, you know, I can't point the finger at anybody. I have to point the finger at myself and realize that I am the King Midas of my world. I am the one that projects my version of reality. Um, so I know that's a lot, but it's such a fertile topic that has immediate applicability to things like lucid dreaming and dream yoga. Well, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's one of the <clears throat> more interesting things <clears throat> about these various paths of waking up. Um, and, and these go back, it, again, depending on exactly how you define terms, but um, at the very least, some of the relatively sophisticated forms uh, that you find in things like the Upanishads or the various sutras, um, a lot of um, the deep um, Western mystical traditions, at least several thousand years. And one of, one of the most common and most widely used um, explanations of what's going on is that there's some sort of, in the waking state, you have some sort of experience of waking up so that what you thought was a real world, this normal waking state, you actually have an experience where you now view that state as having the exact type of reality that the dream state has. Exactly. You're used to that. You go into the dream state, and particularly when you're a kid, it's, you're just stunned by the fact that 
you go to sleep at night, you somehow create this entire world. And the most interesting thing about it is that it's absolutely real. Yeah. No idea whatsoever that it's, quote, just a dream. And so it is always surprising. You can wake up and go, wow, how did that happen? And particularly, you know, as you're a kid and you're just getting introduced to all this stuff, that is always, it's just, it's, it's astonishing for, for most kids. It is like, what is happening? And of course, they're dealing with this whole paradox of their own awareness that is actually plugged into the ground of all being, but they're pretending to, you know, in a way that actually is a dream. And so you have this waking up to the state of waking up. And it's often called enlightenment, awakening. Um, it's also big terms like metamorphosis, complete transformation, moksha, means, uh, freedom, release. Um, and this type of awakening experience, it does, well, Shankar used the term subrate, so subration. So uh, our typical waking state, sub rates the dream state so mm -hmm. you have a dream then you wake up and you compare the two states mm -hmm. and you say, oh well the dream state that wasn't real that was just a dream and now i'm awake this is what's real but then there is this type of, of further profound experience of awakening where you do the same thing with the waking state and you realize okay wow i thought that was real but that really is point number one. The world is an illusion. Brahman alone is real. So what on earth is, is going on there? And in a sense, what that is, and here you have to get just sort of a little bit, again, metaphysical, which means it's not the way it's actually experienced, which is one way we talk about it. But one of the things that we are absolutely certain of in our whole experience right now is if we are saying, okay, where did it come from? Why am I here? Who, what is this? Where is the universe headed? What the hell is going on? <laughs> one thing we're certain of is that it's a deep mystery. Right now we can be aware of the fact that there is an enormous mystery of our existence that's going on. And in a sense, if you want to think about some sort of ground that's ever-present and is always here and that you can't really get away from in certain ways. In other words, what is an ultimate ground of being? That absolute mystery of our existence qualifies as well as anything that's always here. It's always the case. And it's, it's fairly staggering. And we start, of course, attempting to answer that sort of broad, what the hell is going on Kind of question with all the disciplines that we come up with, sciences and, and religions and, and whatnot, then there is this one sort of experience where if there is something like the ground of all people, <clears throat> it was something before the big bang, it is at least possible that whatever that ground is, if it was the ground of everything, then it would be the ground of my own experience right now and I could have a type of awakening that would give me access to that ground it's not unreasonable to assume that that's possible 
And it becomes interesting because if you do look worldwide and sort of just the sum total of humanity's experience, there is this whole um, group of people that have had these kinds of waking up experiences. And they all essentially point to this broadly similar kind of ground of all being. It does indeed appear to be infinite and eternal. And it, it's just ever present. And we can be aware of that. And when we are, we realize that just our ordinary everyday experience in space and time, that is illusory in the sense that it's not itself directly aware of this ground of being. Mm -hmm. so it was a ground of being. And it did manifest in the world. Then that's sort of what you would expect. I mean, if you were just identified with just the manifest world and you weren't aware of the ground of all being, then that wouldn't be an ultimately real state. That would be uh, illusory. And if you could wake up to it, then you would have that kind of realization. And that does give humanity at least the possibility that, that this mystery of our existence is indeed a mystery, but it's a mystery in the sense also that it's an emptiness. And it's a mystery because it can never be made an object of awareness. And that is our own pure emptiness. That is our own ground of being. And we can actually awaken to that in, in a direct and immediate way. And when we do do that, then it's not that we're finding a world that's separate from this world. We're just finding the actual suchness, the reality of this world. So again, it's not that emptiness is different from form. Mm -hmm. It's that it's the emptiness of all form. Mm -hmm. It's not something separate from it. It's its very nature, its very thusness, its suchness, its very isness, is that mystery, that emptiness, that radical openness. When you experience that and then you compare it to the state you were in that wasn't aware of, then that state seems to have not much more reality than the dream state. And so you're going to start referring to this state that you had where you plugged in to the true mystery, the emptiness of, of existence. That was an awakening. That was an enlightenment that was awakened up. Previous to that, it very much was like the dream state. And if I just pay attention to just those finite spatial temporal things that are rising, staying a bit, and then passing, like everything in the manifest world does, my experience to that, the more I'm plugged into this ever-present ground, will be that it's a relatively real realm. In other words, it's a dream-like state. Mm -hmm. And it will indeed feel like that. And that all makes sense in terms of if there is a ground and if it can be realized, that's one of the ways it's going to show up. I mean, that's not a huge stretch of the imagination to say something like that is the case. And you have the added benefit that when you take the people who have done the first two strands mm -hmm. of three strand 
good science, namely, they did the practice, they had the illumination, and then you compare notes, there's a very similar type of conclusion about all of this. And that is you can have this path of enlightenment or awakening or waking up and have this direct realization of a ground that doesn't announce itself as an ever-present, all-embracing ground of all existence. Why is that surprising? Especially since this can be a direct, immediate, first-person experience, and people have been having this experience for thousands of years in quite different cultures with very, very similar types of reports. And that becomes believable. And so that whole notion of waking up is that there are indeed states of being, states of awareness, states of existence that you can get into, and some of them, for whatever reason, directly announce themselves to our awareness of being more real or less real. There are things that we actually experience as a dream, mm-hmm. and we experience as a dream only because we can awaken. Yeah, exactly. We experience this waking state now, we understand it as a dream, only because we can actually awaken from yeah. it. That yeah. happens. Yeah. Yeah. And it's beautiful. I, you know, Ken, to me, it's like, it's so interesting. I, I thought about this, you know, one of the ways we characterize our nighttime dream is in contradistinction, of course, um, most of this takes place unconsciously, to what we call our so-called waking reality. And so we look at our nighttime dream and we... We append things like, oh, it's disjointed, it's incongruous, it's fleeting, it's whatever. And we deem that particular state of consciousness, we call that a dream. And the only reason I would argue that we we um, kind of take refuge in so-called physical reality, don't see that as a dream, simply because we haven't stepped into something more stable, more unchanging, more literally the changeless nature from the perspective of which this so-called waking reality then starts to appear is exactly the same as a dream. And then also kind of conjoined with that is the the larger definition of dream at this point really becomes manifestation of mind and how mind, you know, dances across the spectrum of manifestation. We reify certain states, take those to be real, other states we deem as less real, we call those dreams, until we develop this irreducible, changeless um, kind of domain of mind, where then everything appears to be a dream. Um, and so I want to ask you this. This is where also, you know, the idea of the spectrum of consciousness really kind of comes back into play here, because when we were talking earlier about Ananda and the bliss, the affective response of the awakened state, I think on one level, it's helpful for people to also realize that the spectrum of consciousness, you know, exists within us right now. And by that, what I mean is we have, you know, the ultraviolet um, aspects of our being that really do want to wake up, that really do want to attain realization, that are on the spiritual path. And yet we have this kind of evolutionary tail, this infrared, this caboose of our being that doesn't want to have anything to do with it, that's actually afraid of these spaces. And so the reason I put this forward is because sometimes we can have these experiences of egolessness, of emptiness of the nature of reality. And and if they're left alone, 
we register effectively those as the, the, the types of ecstasy and bliss that we, we were referring to. But isn't it the case in your experience and also through your reading that the minute that um, non-referential experience is in fact referenced, the minute it's slotted back into some structural interpretive lens, very often, unless that structural interpretive lens is pretty evolved, the usual affective caboose reaction to that would be one of fear. And so, you know, I find that we enter this kind of bipolar relationship to waking up. There's part of us that really wants to wake up, but on the bipolar end, there's another part that doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And it brings up the resistance. I'm a lousy meditator. I can't do lucid dreaming. I can't do dream yoga. All the poverty mentality that comes into play, which is really the implementation of, you know, these fearful strategies to avoid the fear of reality and truth. Has that been your experience on the path and also your experience of um, just raw understanding? Well, I think, um, I think that's a fairly um, common type of um, perspective on these things. I mean, first of all, the, the whole point about these waking up type of experiences um, is that not simply something that you can, you know, just believe in. And that's sort of the whole point. One of the things that makes this type of spirituality um, so different from, let's say, a mythic literal uh, stage uh, of development, where you actually have to choose to believe that Moses really parted the Red Sea. And you have to choose to believe that Jesus Christ is the one and only biological son of the one and only God of the universe and so on. I mean, these are actual um, beliefs that you choose to adopt. And what's your evidence for those? Well, it's hard to say. You can't really point to anything that proves it. You might have had a an awakening experience. And if you did that within the framework of a belief like Christianity, then you would, you would call it being reborn. And that would, and in some cases actually is you have a real waking up experience, which you tend to immediately do is just interpret it directly in terms of that mythic little literal framework. And so it can end up simply reinforcing your fundamentalist beliefs. But in general, the whole point about, this kind of waking up uh, experience is that it is an experience. It's a direct realization that you have. And that tends to be, particularly when they are uh, very direct, very profound, very authentic uh, examples of those kinds of waking up experiences, those do tend to take on this very broad family of resemblances, again, worldwide. And so much so that there's always been um, for several hundred years, there's been a whole sort of loose affiliation of uh, scholars that, that would call themselves something and say that they were, um, that what they quote believed in was something that they would call things like the perennial philosophy, right. um, which is simply that you find these types of experiences occurring. Uh, cross-culturally, in pretty much every major culture we have, and going back for thousands of years, and then often when philosophers have that kind of experience, then they will end up writing you know, entire philosophical treatises and orientations based on the fact that there is an experience of waking up, 
there's an experience of enlightenment. And this does tend to disclose this type of ground of all being. And that's a big deal. I mean, clearly, that if, if that was real, you'd want to know about mm -hmm. that. And so it's a very real experience. It's not something that you're simply asked to take on faith or just, okay, I'll give it a shot and see how it goes. Um, it's a direct, immediate, first-person experience. In that sense, there's actual evidence for it. It really is a type of interior um, experience uh, of, of an ultimate type of reality. And, and when people say today that I'm spiritual but not religious, right. that's, that's often what they mean. They say, well, I, I, by religion... I mean, all these institutions of mythic, literal belief that you have to believe that, you know, Jesus Christ is the one and only son of God and so on. Then they just don't buy that anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and pretty much most educated people, uh, by the time you get into college, you just don't buy that mythic stuff. It just doesn't make sense to you. Uh, you don't believe it uh, in the Middle Ages the percentage of Europeans that believe in that type of mythic literal approach was about 95% of the population. Today, the percent of Northern Europeans that believe that is 11%. Hmm. So, so much for that mythic literal stuff, <laughs> just not going well. So, uh, so we do spiritual mean, no, it's just direct immediate experience that I actually have. And that can also end up being very narcissistic and egocentric and all of that. It's also pointing to the fact that this is based on, on real evidence, direct immediate experience, not some belief system that somebody says I have to believe if, if, if I you know, want some sort of something like eternal life, which misunderstands eternity while it's at it. Um, so that's a very real experience. This very, very common uh idea that comes right after the idea that there's this very real waking up is that before you had that waking up you had a sense of yourself sense of who you are that was different than who you feel you are when you have this waking up experience so the waking up experience is often described as discovering your true self or your real self and your real self, capital R, capital S, is always beyond your conventional self, who you thought you were, the small self, the narrow self, the finite self, the mortal self, however you want to look at it. This realization of ground of all being is a realization of a truer, deeper self that you have. And that means same breath, you're dying to that small self. Mm -hmm. And that's where it can start to get tricky. And if you just tilt a little bit, a few more ounces on the scale of ultimate truth, mm -hmm. you are indeed recognizing that ever-present happiness and all-embracing love that is a core of your true self. And that's fun. Then if the if you put just a little few more ounces on the relative there you go. Scale, yep. That's so fun. 
all of a sudden you're back to that narrow self. And of course you have an identity with that. And it literally is the case that for you to realize that real self, you have to literally die to that small self. And that's not fun. Yeah. That yeah. is always spooky. And there, a lot of people's first experience is something like the infinite void or infinite abyss or, yeah. or all engulfing uh, um, absolute emptiness is, is a terror, is a real fear. Um, and it's both fear of just that the radical newness of that infinite embrace. It's also, it's also fear of dying to the only self that I thought I had. Now that turns out to be um, an illusion. That's not really real, just like the rest of that manifest finite temporal stuff is not really real, not ultimately real. And that's a very, very frightening thing. And yeah. it just comes with that territory. Yeah. It's, it's not an accident that a lot of the great hero myths, like the Christian, involve a, a horrible ordeal no, of death and dying, yeah. suffering, yeah. process, only to be reborn yeah. in a unity with God. That's a pretty fundamental archetype, and it's fundamentally true. Yeah, absolutely. So that's good news as soon as you get to the terrifying part. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, isn't it true? I mean, the, the way I look at it, you know, after 45 years of stumbling and fumbling along my path, it's really, you know, the, the spiritual path is just death and slow motion. It, it's a way to titrate the releasing part, letting go, differentiating from, these are all euphemisms for death. And, and, and to me, Ken, it's, it's, you know, really, the whole process is one of dying to these false levels while we can still do so on our terms before death's non-negotiable terms. And it's either like we do it now on our terms or we go through the chipper on, on reality's non-negotiable terms. Um, and then, you know, then we're buffeted around by our inability to negotiate that space. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, to me, this is also reiterated. Every night when we go to sleep, when we when we go through the cycles of the dissolution of waking consciousness into the dreaming state, there's a, a, a level of differentiation and death that takes place there. And then also when we fall into deep dreamless sleep, and I'm wondering if if you would think that that is perhaps one, there's several reasons why we don't recognize deep dreamless sleep. One is we're simply not familiar with it. You know, we're not familiar with formless awareness. We're familiar with the forms that arise in awareness. But do you also think that there might be a deep kind of subliminal part of our makeup that does not want to recognize? Like when we slide into deep dreamless sleep, a part of the recognition would be um, a lack of recognition would be, you know, we don't want to go there. We don't want to feel that. So in a very real way, we black out. Um, is, do you think that's a fair way to talk about that lack of recognition when we drop into the death that takes place? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and... Um, even if, um, in part, it, it can it's a um, a direct, um, almost immediate uh, defense mechanism yeah. uh, against actual, you know, death process, which is really what it is. Um, and it's also it, it just in in some cases almost just uh, automatically comes to the territory, so to speak. So, like in in the in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, as mm -hmm. as 
it describes each of these um, different bar doors that you go through. Um, one of the things that tends to happen is as you step down into these lower states, you tend to forget what happened previously, unless you have some sort of constant consciousness going on. But there does tend to be that uh, almost automatic kind of blacking out that goes with it. The biggest thing that changed for me when I began to pollute the dream, uh-huh. I became a very subtle, constant awareness into a deep dreamless state, was, well, I'll preface it by, by backing up and saying, we talked a little bit earlier about you have an identity that you form uh, mm-hmm. in your waking state. Mm-hmm. And that's almost always, even though at its very, very back, it's a pure witnessing awareness. It's just a pure I amness. In the waking state, it's I am this or I am that. And something from the waking state you identified with. So you identified, well, among other things, which is just this individual body. You identified with your work, with your relationships, with your friends. All of these form aspects of an identity that you have in the gross waking state. Mm-hmm. And what happens when you move into a dream state is, first of all, none of that waking state stuff is there, certainly not in its direct, typical, ordinary form. Mm-hmm. It's an entirely different realm, in a sense. And the, the only thing that, that marks it um, as a sort of constant identity is it's not any of that gross waking state stuff. That's just <laughs> not here. Right. There's that I amness. I mean, when you wake up, you don't hesitate saying, oh, I had a bad dream. Oh, I had a great dream. You know there was I amness there. And it didn't have anything to do with the waking state. So where is that I amness? Now, take it even farther. And this is why I said this is the biggest staggering change for me that even though there there were realizations of satori or kensho or awakening types of experiences and i'd been experiencing those for for several years there was as you move into that deep dreamless state and there is still that subtle i amness present but there's no gross objects at all there are no subtle objects at all mm-hmm. and yet there is pure perfect i amness and it's just stunning that that's what you really realize your supreme identity you really realize that you are not identified with any of those manifest finite objects they don't constitute what you call yourself and that you recognize as your true self and this is a self that is still constant. It was constant and gross. It's in subtle. It's in causal. If it's not present in deep dreamless sleep, it's not real. But when you do find something that's present in deep dreamless sleep, it's shocking because it's nothing gross and it's nothing subtle. And yet it's still 100% I amness. And that's what's so unbelievably mind-boggling about the whole thing. And so that's why I was saying it was... In a certain sense, it's not required that somebody have that kind of ongoing experience through all those states. You can still realize that ever-present, timeless, infinite ground of being. But when you 
do get that paradoxical addition of seeing just how it remains ever-present through states. That is a really, really profound deep of that type of realization. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that does tend to happen. And it is, um, it's a, it, it's in a certain sense, it's kind of a tricky transition mm -hmm. because you really are giving up as you move from subtle in, into causal, pure, formless state, you really are giving up those relative realities. You really are dying to those. And of course, there's that old mystical uh, statement that if you die before you die, then when you die, you won't die. And um, it just means that if you die to that relative self-sense, that separate self-sense, and you awaken to that ever-present true self, that timeless, eternal, all-embracing self, then that really does exist prior to the stream of time. So it doesn't enter the stream of time. It doesn't leave the stream of time. It doesn't die, but only because it wasn't born. And it came into existence as an objective, finite thing. So because it's unborn, and it's known as, this is the great unborn. It's also undying. Because if it's never born, it's never going to die. And all that means is it itself didn't enter and identify just with some temporal event in the chronological stream of time. It's just prior to that temporal unfolding altogether. And therefore not subject to the vicissitudes of old age, sickness, and death. I mean, this is where, again, this is... You know, we're not talking spiritual mumbo-jumbo here. We're talking about something that if you can get even get a glimpse of this, Ken, as, as one grows old and faces the, you know, the inevitable decline of that which is not real, which is this physical form, if we can learn to doctrinally and, and then experientially take refuge in this indestructible nature, then we can, I mean, this is a game changer, like you're saying. Then we can dispassionately and compassionately watch the display, in this case, the disintegration of form, with a sense of tremendous equanimity. And as you know, as we age and we, the silver tsunami, tsunami rushes towards the black beach of death, and we hold this view and we can actualize it with the exemplars, with the paradigms that we've been giving, given, this really then transforms the greatest obstacle into the greatest opportunity. Then we realize it as we age, it's sick and die. It's literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to watch nature somewhat forcefully bring about this dissolution process. But now, because we've died before we died, we can watch it with, with a sense of tremendous ease and grace. And this, in fact, brings about what we call a good death. And so I want to start wrapping it up. I want to say one thing here that I thought was just spot on about, you know, as, as we dissolve into the state uh, of formlessness, whether it's night to night or in the barrows from life to life, you know, we, we tend to forget there's kind of this uh, primordial amnesia that takes place. And I, I wondered what, if this relates to your experience, it's, it's what I somewhat playfully refer to now as a, a form of PTSD, where in this case, the T is truth. You know, Dharmakaya, as you know, is literally body of truth. And so my experiential and doctrinal understanding is one of the reasons we have this kind of primordial forgetfulness of which the spiritual path, as you know, is really a process of remembrance, is that, you know, as we go through the chipper of death and we realize the truth 
of our no-bodiness, our no-thingness, we contract and we, meaning you know, the center of gravity that we call ego, then blacks out. And, and we spend most of our lives in this kind of PTSD, this, this form of amnesia that really constitutes the entirety of our lives. Um, and then, you know, by understanding that, we can bring that into the light of consciousness. We can realize that when fear arises on the path, it's actually a good sign. It's, it's a sign that we, act, in fact, could be getting closer to the truth. And, and it's a really, I think, a, for me, a very practical way to bring some of the adverse circumstances that people experience on the path into a deeper sense of integrated understanding. Does that, does that resonate with your experience as well? Yeah, uh, definitely. And, I mean, it is, um, you were talking um, a bit earlier about um, old age and what tends to happen with that. And exactly because what tends to happen as people just continue to live is that they go through more experiences, more experiences, they've done this, they've done that, and then they start to, um, it's sort of a natural sort of, just living itself is is its own sort of um, session, it's its own sort of spiritual practice, because you go through so many experiences, and how many times did you think it was going to just kill you, and yet somehow... Mm -hmm going on and then the next horrible thing happens and of course when you're a teenager you're having life and death experiences once a week and, and it's horrifying um and, but then all of a sudden things just start to smooth out a bit i mean it really is a diamond vehicle this vajra body this indestructible nature of what we are and that, that often when we just even sort of people generally think about um the, what we refer to as the wisdom of old age. Yeah. There's still times that we tend to recognize that as a culture. And also we all know people who've gotten um, quite, you know, very old and they just, uh, they're almost transparent. They're translucent. Yeah. They're just radiant. Mm -hmm. And you can just feel that they have had some of these types of deep realization. That there's something in them that has gone through so many different, uh, changes, but itself doesn't change. There's something yeah. that's indestructible. And that fundamental uh, emotional feeling of enlightenment, which is that joyful lovingness that permeates your being, sometimes you'll see that in, in um, elderly people that are just radiant with that kind of um, wonderful translucent being. And if, if um, joyful loving oneness the feeling of enlightenment the sort of natural condition of an enlightened awareness the natural condition of the separate self of the individual limited self is indeed fear i mean the upanishads put it perfectly wherever there is other there is fear so wherever you separate yourself from an other welcome to fear because that's what you get. That's the emotional tenor of the separate self. That's what drives it. And that's what makes it essentially horrifying. Um, and so in addition to this manifest world looked at by itself, in addition to being dukkha, which basically means it sucks, it's painful, it's intense, angst-driven, it's also um, covered in fear. So that's a lot of fun. And that's exactly um, what the normal human condition is, is all about. And yet we have this capacity of awakening 
protect our own diamond vehicle, our own literal indestructibleness, which doesn't mean that we go on forever in the stream of time. It means that we're just prior to that whole unfolding of limited spatial temporal constriction. And we actually can relax into that openness of our own true being, our own genuine and real nature. And we can tell that this is an immediate, direct experience that we have. Nobody's asking anybody to take something on faith or a mere belief system that you're supposed to believe in is something hellaciously awful is going to happen to you if you don't. This is a, if there is a science of an interior, this is it. And this is what makes it so um, incredibly um, capable of being embraced by people who also have a very rational, highly educated uh, orientation to life. They don't find any trouble with this type of direct, immediate spiritual realization. Just like William James didn't have any trouble with it. They do have trouble with mythic literal beliefs, as in understood. So that's what's so interesting about all of this. And it's um, one of the reasons that um, uh, that that you and I um, would not be hopefully um, easily confused with a fundamentalist um, you know, believer that's mm-hmm. insisting on the one and only correct way to view the entire world or else uh, we're going to um, burn you at the stake or something. Um, so this is a type of realization that we can fully embrace can really have a great deal of growing up in addition to a waking up. And that's good news all around. Yeah, I can't, but what a delight and what a great way to end our, our conversation here to talk about the joyful, indestructible, loving essence, the, the diamond essence. And again, you know, this is a journey that we take um, every single night when we go to sleep, we have the opportunity to go through this unbelievable cycle of liberation. And also, if you don't recognize it, you know, the entrapment back into the world of conditioned existence. It, it's, it's an opportunity that awaits us literally every single night when we go to sleep. So I cannot tell you how grateful I am to have spent this time. You're very generous with your time. I think what we un- un- uncovered here, talked about, is things that our listeners will savor for an extraordinarily long time. There's so much here. So before we close here, um, Ken, I wanted to give you the opportunity. How can people learn more about you? I, I can, at this point in my life and career, I can hardly imagine that anybody doesn't know about you. But for those who may be new to your incredible work, um, what references, how can we direct them to what you do so they can ex- explore the genius of your great contribution? Well, I appreciate that. Um, certainly, um, almost any um, books of mine that people want to try, and there are a couple dozen of them, you can uh, Amazon or Google them. Um, there are several websites, but the one I would probably point to is integrallife.com. Um, and of course, um, we have you there and lots of other um, good friends who are with integral approaches to pretty much uh, every discipline imaginable. Um, And so this is all uh, exciting. It's a terrific time to um, be exposed to the enormous number of very real truths 
that there are out there, and especially uh, a chance really for the first time in history to be able to include all of them, to literally make room for everything. That's an astonishing um, opportunity we have now. So that in itself is fantastic. Um, and I would, um, I hope people would continue to be interested in this and to find ways they can make their own lives fuller and freer by getting involved in these types of uh, journeys. Yeah, beautifully said, my friend. And, and it's really, it's, it's, it's so interesting to me in, in a kind of perfect alchemical or tantric way you know, we live in the Kali Yuga. We live in the Dark Age. We don't have, we don't have to look too far to recognize that. But wherever you find darkness, you will find light. And um, in a certain way, as you know, especially in Vajrayana teachings, the darker it is, the more uh, light potentiality is there. And so that's when really luminaries like you come into the world, Ken, who, who bring a radiant light of, of intellect and then even more importantly for me and this is why i love you so much the, the part that i uh, want people to know more of you is your extraordinary heart your your warmth your compassion the vows that you've taken to be of service to the world sometimes people lose that with, with the brilliance of your intellect and i know you well enough to realize that that's what drives what you do and that radiance has certainly transformed my life dear friends and to whatever extent this touched our listeners through these past hours. Um, you need to know that your life is a gift to us all, and we are the beneficiaries of what you bring to us. So thank you so much for spending time with us, and uh, hopefully our paths will cross many times in, in this life, and who knows if there are future ones, but if there is, let's do it again. <laughs> uh, bless you, my friend. Sending you much, much love. All the best. Take care, Ken. All right. Bye. Bye.